The following is a debate between Ben Shapiro and Destiny, each arguably representing the right and the left of American politics, respectively. They are two of the most influential and skilled political debaters in the world. This debate has been a long time coming, for many years. It's about 2.5 hours, and we could have easily gone for many more, and I'm sure we will. It is only round one. And now, a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got AG1 for health, Policy Genius for insurance, ExpressVPN for privacy and security on the interwebs, and Inside Tracker for biological data that leads to health. Choose wisely, my friends. Also, if you want to work with our amazing team or always hiring, go to lexfriedman.com slash hiring. Or if you want to get in touch with me, for whatever reason, go to lexfriedman.com slash contact. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you must skip them, friends, please do check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This episode is brought to you by AG1, an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. I have to be honest, I ran out of it two days ago. It was one of those moments when you realize how big of a part of your life a thing is. You really do realize that when a thing is gone, most intensely, most viscerally. And it's actually the little things that form the foundation of a peaceful existence. Those little rituals, those little habits, those little comforts, they make life so at once mundane and at the same time, just perfect, just right. Anyway, I've recently been doing daily exercise of some sort. So it's either grappling, running, or weightlifting, one of those, and at least one hour. I think like a lot of things, it's just easier to do a thing every day than like five times a week. Because if it's every single day, it's just there. There's, you can't escape the day without doing it, and that somehow makes it easier to do it. Anyway, I do AG1 twice a day, once after the workout. You should try it out. They'll give you a one-month supply of fish oil when you sign up at drinkag1.com slash lex. This episode is brought to you by Policy Genius, a marketplace for finding and buying insurance. When I'm thinking about life insurance, I'm thinking about three things. First, the Stoics and meditating on your mortality. Second, Matthew Cox, that episode I just did where he tried selling insurance. That was the first thing he tried to make his dad proud. And then that didn't really work out. So he went to mortgage fraud. <laughs> so you should definitely listen to that episode. It's a fascinating one. And then the third thing I think about is Better Call Saul, which is a show that I finally, finally started watching. And it's incredible. Dare I say it might actually be better than Breaking Bad, the original show from which it's a spinoff. That might be the only spinoff show in the history of television that is better than the original. I know, strong words, but it's, it's damn good. Anyway, that, that guy makes me think of uh, sales and selling insurance and so on. Anyway, back to the first point, which is meditating on your mortality, and you should meditate on your mortality for philosophical and psychological purposes, but for pragmatic purposes, you should also actualize that into getting some insurance. And you could do that easily, efficiently, in a modern way with Policy Genius. You can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year. 
for $1 million in coverage. Head to policygenius.com slash Lex or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash Lex. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I've used them for many years to uh, protect myself on the internet. Everybody should be using a VPN and ExpressVPN is the one I stand behind. There's a big sexy button. It used to be red. I think it's a different color now. Let me see. It's like the the power symbol is red and glowing from different colors into maroon, magenta. It's like modernized. I get it. You gotta you gotta update with the times. It's still sexy though. Not not crude, bold, simple red. It's more like fluorescent like glowing. It's funny when uh companies change the look of things to make it seem and feel updated. Like for example, Google, it does, it, it works, I get it. But I still a little bit miss the old Google logo. Just like that ghetto HTML look <laughs> from like the, the, the early, early days. It still works. I don't know, the simplicity of that. There's a, a kind of authenticity to how crappy that Google logo looked. Anyway, and there is the old times with ExpressVPN. I've been with them forever. I mean, long, long, long before they were a sponsor. I've used them. I've loved them. They brought joy to my heart. Anyway, you too can share in the joy by going to expressvpn.com slash LexPod for an extra three months free. This episode is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to collect information from my body via blood data, DNA data, fitness tracker data to then make lifestyle and dietary recommendations on how I can be a better version of myself. Just imagine the raw sensory waterfall of data coming from the human body and using that data through the very kinds of neural nets that are being used in large language models to make predictions, recommendations, summarization, sort of integrating, simplifying all of that data that's not human interpreted at all and making it human interpretable. That's the future. Anyway, Inside Tracker's taking steps towards that future. The very basic thing is you should be making decisions about your life in part using data that comes from your own, very own body. That's what Inside Tracker can help you with. Get special savings for a limited time when you go to insidetracker.com slash flex. This is the Lex Freeman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Ben Shapiro and Destiny. Ben, you're conservative. Destiny, you're a liberal. Can you each describe what key values underpin your philosophy on politics and maybe life in the context of this left-right political spectrum? You wanna go first? Yeah, so I think that we have a huge country full of a lot of people, a lot of individual talents, capabilities, 
Um, and I think that the goal of government, broadly speaking, should be to try to ensure that everybody's able to achieve as much as possible. So on a liberal level, that usually means some people might need a little bit of a boost when it comes to things like education. Um, they might need a little bit of a boost when it comes to providing certain necessities like housing or food or clothing. But broadly speaking, I mean, I'm still a liberal, not a communist or a socialist. I don't believe in the you know total command economy, total communist takeover of all of the uh, you know economy. But I think that broadly speaking, the government should kind of like kick in and help people when they need it. And that government can and should be big. Not necessarily. Uh, I noticed that when liberals talk about government, or especially taxes, it seems like they talk about it for taxes sake or big, bigness sake. So people talk about taxes sometimes as like a, like a punishment, like tax the rich. Uh, I think taxing the rich is fine insofar as it funds the programs that we want to fund. But Democrats have a really big problem demonizing success or wealth. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad thing to be wealthy, to, to be a billionaire or whatever, as long as we're funding what we need to fund. Ben, what do you think it means to be a conservative? What's, what's the philosophy that underlies your political view? So first of all, I'm glad that Destiny, you're already coming out as a Republican. That's exciting. Um, I mean, I, I, we hold a lot in common in terms of, uh, you know, the, the basic idea that people ought to have as much opportunity as possible. And also, insofar as the government should do the minimum amount necessary to interfere in people's lives in order to pursue certain functions, particularly at the local level. So a lot of governmental discussions on a pragmatic level end up being discussions about where government ought to be involved, but also at what level government ought to be involved. And I have an incredibly subsidiary view of government. I, I think that you know local governments, because you have higher levels of homogeneity and, and consent, uh, are capable of doing more things. And as you abstract up the chain, it becomes more and more impractical and more and more divisive to, to do more things. In, in my view, government is basically there to preserve certain key liberties. Uh, the, those key liberties pre-exist the government uh, in so far as they are more important than what priorities the government has. The, the job of government is to maintain, for example, national defense, protection of property rights, uh, protection of religious freedom. Right? The, the, these, are, these are the key focuses of government as generally expressed in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And, and I agree with the general philosophy of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't do more on a governmental level, again, as you get closer to the ground, which, by the way, is also embedded in the Constitution. People forget the Constitution was originally applied to the federal government, not to local and state governments. Um, but you know, if I were going to define conservatism, it would actually be a little broader than that, because I think to understand how people interact with government, you have to go to kind of core values. And, and so for me, there, there are a couple of premises. One, human beings have a nature. That nature is neither good nor bad. We have aspects of goodness and we have aspects of badness. Human beings are sinful. We have temptations. And what that means is that we have to be careful not to incentivize the bad and that we should incentivize the good. Human beings do have agency and are capable of making decisions in the vast majority of circumstances. Um, and it is better for society if we act as though they do. Uh, second, the basic idea of human nature, there is an idea in my view, that all human beings have equal value before the law. Yeah, I'm, I'm a religious person, so I'd say equal value before God, but I think that's also sort of a key tenet of Western civilization, being non-religious or religious, that every individual has equivalent value in sort of cosmic terms. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that every person is equally equipped to do everything equally well. And so it is not the job of government to rectify every imbalance of life. The quest for cosmic justice, as, as Thomas Sowell suggests, uh, is something that government is generally incapable of doing and more often than not botches and makes things worse. So th those are a few key tenets and that, that tends to materialize 
in in a variety of ways the 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 easiest way to sum that up would the, the traditional kind of three legs of the the conservative stool although now obviously there's a very fragmented conservative movement in the United States would be a uh, a socially conservative view in which family is the chief institution of society like the little platoons of society as, as Edmund Burke suggested uh, in which free free markets and property rights are extraordinarily valuable and necessary uh, because every individual has the ability to be creative with their property and to freely alienate that property. Uh, and uh, and finally, I tend toward a hawkish foreign policy that suggests that the world is not filled with wonderful people who all agree with us and think like us. And those people will pursue adversarial interests if we if we do not protect our own interests. Can mm -hmm. I ask a question on that? I'm so yeah, curious. Sure. Okay. Uh -huh. um, I'm excited for this conversation because I consider you to be really intelligent. Um, but I feel like sometimes there are ways that conservatives talk about certain issues that seem to defy logic and reason, I guess. So here, and I'm sure you feel the same way about progressives. Well, I feel the same way about progressives, um, but even some uh, liberals for sure. Uh, before I ask this question, it's going to relate to education. We can agree, broadly speaking, that statistics are real and that not everybody could do everything. So for a grounded example, uh, my life was pretty bad. I got into streaming and I turned my life around and that was really cool, but I can't expect everybody to do what I did, right? Like everybody being able to join the NBA or to be like a streamer. Well, of or, course, everybody yeah. has different qualities, sure. sure. Okay. So I used to be a lot more libertarian um, when I was 20, 21. And one of the things that dramatically changed kind of my view on government uh, manipulation of things in the I guess in society came uh, when it came time to deal with my son and the school that he went to. And one of the things that I noticed was when it came time to send my son to school, I could either do private education or I could do public. Uh, personally, I did 12 years of Catholic private education. Um, however, the public schools in Nebraska, depending on where you lived, were very, very, very good. And I opted for a certain district. I bought a house there. I moved there. And then my son was able to go to those schools. Um, and he's been going through those schools. And the difference of availability of like technology, like these kids are taking home iPads in like first grade. Uh, they've got like huge computer labs and everything. Do you think that there is some type of, I don't want to say injustice or unfairness, because I'm not even looking at it that way, just pragmatically, that there might be children that are in certain schools that if they just had better funding or more uh, access to technologies or things available to them, that those kids would become more productive members of society, that with like a little bit of a help, that they, they could actually achieve more and do better for all of society. So I think that on the list of priorities, when it comes to education, mm -hmm. the availability of technology is actually fairly low on the list of priorities. Sure, Meaning the two things the, I've heard are uh, food availability and I think air conditioning, I think are the two biggest ones that I hear, but sure. Well, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing in terms of education itself, not just the physical facilities that we're talking about, mm -hmm. would actually be two-parent family households. Sure. Communities that that have fathers in them is sure. actually the number one decisor, according to Roland Fryer and, and many studies done on the, this particular topic. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that money alone, that investment of resources is the top priority in schooling is belied by the fact that LAUSD, which is where I went to school when I was younger, mm -hmm. uh, they pour an enormous amount of money into LAUSD. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars very often per student, mm -hmm. and it does not result in better schooling outcomes. And so when you say, if we could give every kid an iPad, would you give every kid an iPad? The question is not, if I had a replicator machine from Star Trek, would I give everybody an enormous amount of stuff? Sure, I, I would. Mm -hmm. every, every resource is finite. Every resource is limited. And you have to prioritize what are the, what are the outcomes that you seek in terms of the means with which you are seeking them. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think that the question is, is I, I quibble with the, with the premise of the question, which is that 
again, the the chief injustice when it comes to education on the list of, of injustices is lack of availability to technology or that it's a funding problem. I, I just don't think that's the case. Sure. And I can half agree with you there, but I don't think any amount of changes in the schools will create two-parent households, right? We can't bring it I I, I, I totally to agree yeah. with you. So, that's why I think that the, the fundamental educational problem is not, in fact, a schooling problem. I think that it pre-exists that. Sure. But then I feel like we're now I feel like this is kind of the conservative merry-go-round where it's like, what can we do to help with schools? So two of the things that I've seen, I think, that are usually brought up in research is one is air conditioning, that children in hotter environments just don't learn as well. Um, and then the second one is access to food. So like kids that are given like a breakfast or a lunch that's provided at school, like increases educational outcomes. Now, I agree that neither of these things might be determinative in like, well, 20% of kids were graduating and now 80% of kids are graduating, or these kids are all going, you know, from with their GEDs into the workforce. And now these kids are all suddenly becoming engineers. But in terms of where we can help, do you think there should be like some minimum threshold or minimum baseline of like, at the very least, every school should have a non-leaky gym or every school should have, uh, if children can't afford lunch or breakfast, like some sort of food provided or every school should have these like baseline things? So again, I'm going to mm -hmm. quibble with the premise of the question because sure. I think that when it comes to, for example, food insecurity, school food programs, mm -hmm. again, you can always pour money into any program and at the margins mm -hmm. create change. I mean, there, there's sure. no doubt that pouring money onto anything will create change in a marginal way. The question is how large is the margin and how big is the movement, mm -hmm. right? So the delta is what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, you're, you're starting at a second order question, which is what if we ignore what I would think are the big primary questions of education, namely family structure, value of education at home, how much you have parents who are capable or willing to help with homework. What are the incentive structures we can set up for a society that actually facilitate that? How local communities take ownership of their schools is a big one, mm -hmm. right? All, all of these issues we're ignoring in favor of, say, air conditioning or lunch programs. And so in a vacuum, if you say air conditioning and lunch programs, sounds great in a vacuum. In, in terms of prioritization of values and cost structure, are those the things that I think are going to move the needle in a major way in terms of public policy? I, I do not. And, I, and in fact, I think that many of them end up being disproportionate wastes of money. I mean, I, I've talked before pretty controversially about the fact that an enormous amount of school lunch programs are thrown out, like an enormous amount of that food ends up in the garbage can. Is there a better way to do that? If there is a better way to do it, then I'm perfectly willing to hear about that better way to do it. But it seems to me that one of the big flaws in, in the way that many people of the left approach government is what if we hit every gnat with a hammer? And my question is, what if the gnat isn't even the problem. What if there is a much bigger substructure problem that needs to be solved in order to, if you're shifting deck chairs on the Titanic, sure, you can make the Titanic slightly more balanced because the deck chairs are slightly better oriented. But the real question is the, the water that's gaping into the Titanic, right? Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. But again, the, I feel like we're on the conservative merry-go-round then of never wanting to address that's any- That's not a conservative merry-go-round. I, so, I can give you 10 ways. Well, sure. But so like, here would be the merry-go-round. I would say that like, there is a minimum funding for schools that I think would help children. And then we go, well, the thing that would help them the most is two-parent households. And I go, okay, well, two-parent households actually aren't the problem. Um, the issue is access to things like birth controls, so that people don't have children early on. And it's like, but the issue isn't actually birth control. The issue is actually, you need a certain amount of money to move out early and to get married and then to have a two-parent household. So it's actually like economic opportunity. No, well, it's not, you know, no, just two-parent households. That's yeah, it. but like, what is the, what are the precursors Don't fuck people for... before you're married and have babies. Sure. Done. That's great. We can say that and try to fight against, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, but people will have sex and people will make babies. And then they used to get married. The vast majority of people in this country with mm -hmm. kids used to be married. The vast majority of people with kids in this country sure. now 
are not married increasingly. Mm-hmm. That but is a obviously these, a societal change. Co- Something yeah, changed. It wasn't human evolution. But a lot of those things in terms of resting on whether or not people get married have to do with financial decisions. Do you have the money? People are worse off now than they were 50, 60 years ago when the marriage rates were higher. People are delaying the start of their careers because education is becoming increasingly important. So in, in other words, people are richer now and they have more education now, and yet they're having more babies out of wedlock now because they're richer and have more education. I'm saying that the... One of the biggest indicators for whether or not somebody's willing to get married is how much money both people are making if they can move out of their household. People don't tend to want to get married at 22 when they've just finished college, when they don't have the money to move out and they can't afford a house. Because we have changed the moral status of marriage in the culture, meaning that everyone, poor, rich, and in between, used to get married. That is, by the way, a huge percentage of marriages in the United States used to be what they would call shotgun marriages, meaning that somebody knocked somebody up and because they did not want the baby to be born outside of a two-parent household, they would then get married. Do we think that shotgun marriages, though, are a way to bring back equilibrium to education? Yes. If we... Yes. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Do we a think child that... deserves a mother and a father. Sure. Because but... that is the basis for all of this, including education. Do we think that shotgun marriages are, well, let's say this. Do we think that that's a reasonable direction that society would ever take? Or is this like... Yes, it was the reasonable direction for nearly all of modern history. Was, but history moves in one direction. Right. Why? Because of time, I mean, people people don't think that's such a, in in what in what way is that? Is and I don't think we've ever I mean, like regressed yes, social standards back to like oh well let's go a hundred years back and do things that you know used to exist before. That's I think weird. The like, entire left right now is arguing that we regress social standards by rejecting Roe versus Wade. So that's obviously not true. The Roe versus Wade is not a social standard; it's a Supreme Court ruling. Number yes, one, number then, two. What if you read the actual majority opinion on Roe v. Wade? We can see that socially we ever na- actually never made huge progress on how society viewed abortion. This has always been an incredibly divisive thing, right? Even that was I think part of Alito's. Uh, writing on it was that things like gay marriage, for instance, we've kind of moved past and it's not really as debated anymore, but abortion was never a settled topic. Deba- the, the despite notion, Roe v. Wade's the, the, notion the arc of history mm-hmm. constantly moves in one direction is belied by nearly all of the 20th century. What do we mean by that? I mean, I mean, in the first of, half like, of women's the 20th rights, civil rights, barbarism, communism, Nazism, all of that was a regression from what was happening at, for example, the beginning of the 19th century and the 20th century. What In what way? Nazism and communism weren't a regression from what was for, going on well, in 1905? Com- these are, well, in terms of like communism being a regression, for instance, I'm not a communist, but like the industrialization of the Soviet Union happened under a communist society. The industrialization- so the murder of sure, tens of millions of people. Yeah, there's I consider that a regression. There, sure. A moral regression, which is what we are talking about now, moral regression. And you're, you're, you're suggesting that moral regression, I wouldn't term mm-hmm. a return to traditional values a moral regression, you would. But your suggestion is that history only moves in one direction. And I'm suggesting that history does not only move in, in one direction, it tends to move actually back and forth. Sure. I don't think that all of history moves in one uh, one direction. There are going to be wars. There are going to be times of peace. I think in general, we're more peaceful now than we have been in the past. But I think when we look at the way that people live their lives, I think that we tend to move in a certain direction socially. So when it comes to things like racism or when it comes to things like slavery or women's rights, I think that there are two huge things that probably aren't changing in the US. And one is access to contraception and one is women working jobs. I think that these two things are probably huge things that are moving us off of shotgun marriages or getting married very early on. And I don't See, though, do you think that those two things are going to change fundamentally? First of all, what the data tend to show is that actually more highly educated people, as you were saying, tend mm-hmm. to get married more. So if the idea is that women getting an education somehow throws them off marriage, it's the opposite. Usually but those women, women are not getting, educated. But those women aren't getting shotgun marriages. Those women aren't having children. Yeah, but now, 18, now, now you're shifting the topic. My, my topic was how to get more people married. And what I'm suggesting, and then you suggested that higher levels of education are delaying marriage and making it less probable. And what I'm telling you, because this is what the data suggests, is that actually as you raise up the the educational ladder, people tend to be married more than they are lower down on the educational ladder. If you're a high school graduate, you're less likely to be married than if you're a postdoc. 
I agree with you, but that's because one of the biggest precursors to getting married is having like a level of economic stability. So as people get more educated, they obtain this economic stability, and then they're in a more comfortable position to explore more serious relationships. There's another confound there. I mean, the confound is that Mm -hmm. people in stable marriages tend to be the children of stable marriages. And there's only one way to break that cycle, which is to create a stable marriage. And that is something that is in everyone's hands. Again, this notion that it is somehow an unbreakable, unshatterable barrier to get married and have kids. I don't understand where this is coming from. Why is that such a why is that such a challenge? It's I don't think it's unbreakable or unshatterable. I was just the initial point was for school, if we can provide a minimum level of educational stuff for children, that'd probably be good. But when we retreat back to, well, it has to be the families that are fixed first, fixing families is a multivariate so problem. My, my, listen, so many I am yeah. fine within my local community. We all vote. Again, I've, I've suggested that there's a difference between local community and federal. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with my local community voting for school lunches or air conditioning or whatever it is that we all agree to do, because the more local you get, the more homogeneity you get in terms of interest and the more interest you have in your neighbors. All of that's fine. I'm part of a very, very solid community. In our community, we give to each other. We have minimum standards of helping one another. All of that's wonderful. When it comes to the actual problem of education, Mm -hmm. what I object to in the political sphere, and this happens all the time, is everybody is arguing on top of the iceberg about how we can move the needle 0.5% percentage points, as opposed to the entire iceberg melting beneath them. And we just ignore that. And we pretend that that's just, you know, sort of the natural consequence of thing. The arc of history suggests that people are never going to get married again. Well, I mean, actually what the arc of history suggests, realistically speaking, is that the people who are not getting married are not going to be having kids. And what it also suggests, the people who are married are going to be having kids. And so the demographic profile actually over time is rather going to shift toward people who are having lots and lots of kids. I'm married. I have four kids. Everyone in my community is married. It's like minimum buy-in in my community is four kids, mm-hmm. okay? And so what's happening actually in terms of demographics is that the people who are more religious and getting married are having more kids. And so if you're talking about the arc of history shifting toward marriage, I-, I would suggest that actually demographically over time, long periods of time, not over one generation, over long periods of time, the only cure for low birth rate is going to be the people who get married and have lots of kids. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, but I'm just saying that, again, on the I know you're upset when I bring up the term merry-go-round. Um, I think that there are good conversations to be had about people getting married um, because stable families produce stable children that are less likely to commit crime, that are more likely to go to school, that are more likely to be productive members of society, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to disagree with you on any of that. All right. of that is true. Um, it's just frustrating that sometimes when you bring up any problem, all of it will circle back to other things that makes it seem like we can't make any progress in any area without like fixing in something. What way? I mean, I, I literally just told you that on the local level, I'm fine for people voting for air Yeah, but so for instance, on the local level, so for school funding, school funding is done. I think generally per district. So what do you do when you have poor districts that can't afford air conditioner for their schools? I mean, the idea there would be that presumably if the society, meaning the state, Mm -hmm. and I generally don't mean the federal state, I mean like the state of California, for Mm -hmm. example, decides that everybody ought to have air conditioning, people will vote for air conditioning, and that's perfectly legal. And I don't think there's anything morally objectionable about that per se. Cool. I also don't think that that's going to heal anything remotely like the central problem. And I think that what, what, what tends to happen in terms of government is people love arguing about the problems that can be solved by opening a wallet. And nobody likes to solve a problem by, you know, closing their sex life to one person, for example, Mm -hmm. or having kids within a stable religious community. Like the things that actually build society I'm fine with arguing about each of these policies. And and whether we apply them or not is a matter generally of pragmatism, not morality. It's a matter of incentive structures, not per se morality. Mm -hmm. Because incentive structures do have moral underpinnings. There's such a thing as, for example, if you're going to use a welfare program, you have to decide how effective it is, to what crowd it applies, where the cutoffs are, does it disincentivize work, does it not disincentivize All of these are pragmatic concerns. Mm -hmm. But on a moral level, the generalized objection that I have to 
people on the left side of the aisle is that they like to focus in these conversations very often it feels as though it's a conversation with with people who are drunk searching under the the lamp for their keys the problems they want to look at are the problems that are solvable by government mm -hmm. and then all the problems they don't want to look at which are the actual giant monsters lurking in the dark and not particularly solvable by government are the ones they want to ignore and assume are just the natural state of things. And I don't think yeah. that's correct at all. And I 1 billion percent agree. And then obviously my criticism for the conservative side is the exact opposite, where where there are parts where government could remedy some issues. Um, for instance, you know, uh, children having sex with each other and producing other children out of wedlock, like sometimes having after school programs is nice to prevent that. Like I didn't have time for these things when I was in school. I was doing football practice. I was doing cross country practice. I went in early for a band, you know. Um, I agree with you that sometimes people only focus on one end of the problem as a, I hate to be that guy um, but as somebody that have you ever watched the wire sure i'm not going to cite the wire as real life example but like obviously there's only so much you can do in a school when the children coming in are so beyond destroyed because of the family life and everything prior to them even getting to school that day so i agree government is not like the solution to broken families that would never be the case and it's actually and not the solution to education depending on the kind of solutions that you're talking about. Some solutions, yes. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. solutions, no. Yeah. So the only thing I'm looking at is, as I said earlier, just like these minimum threshold things where it's like, where can government make? Because you mentioned marginal, which I think is a really good way to look at things. There's marginal costs and marginal utility to things where the first $1,000 per student you spend might give you a huge return, but the extra 20000 after yeah, is just I think a these are all pragmatic discussions. Sure, of and course. Okay. Actually, this is what we used to hash out in legislatures before they turned into platforms for people grandstanding, but yes. Sure. Okay, yeah. As we descend from the heavens of philosophical discussion of conservatism and liberalism, let's go to the pragmatic muck of politics. Trump versus Biden, between the two of them, who was in their first term uh, the better president? And thus, who should win if the two of them are, in fact, our choices, should win a second term in 2024? Ben? Sure. So... In terms of actual job performance, you have to separate it into a few categories. Uh, in terms of actual performance in foreign policy, I think Trump's foreign policy record is significantly better than Biden's, the world being on fire right now, being a fairly good example of that. Uh, and we can get into each aspect of the world being on fire and where the incentive structures came from and how all of that happened in a moment. When it comes to the economy, I think that Trump's economic record was better than Biden's. Doesn't mean he didn't overspend. He did. He wildly overspent. Uh, but he also had a very solid record of job creation. A huge percentage of the gains in the economy went to people on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Actually, uh, the gross income to the average American was about $6,000 during his term. The unemployment rates were very, very low before COVID. You know, I think that you almost have to separate the Trump administration into sort of before COVID and during COVID, because COVID obviously is a sort of a black swan event, the, the most signal change in, in politics in our lifetime. Uh, and so you know, governance during COVID is almost its own category, which we can discuss. Um, but, you know, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of domestic policy, I think that Trump was significantly better uh, than, than Biden has been. And that's on the upside for Trump. On the downside for Biden, obviously, you're talking 40-year highs in inflation. You're talking about savings being eaten away. You're talking about everything being 20 to 30, 30% more expensive. Uh, you're talking about massive increases to the deficit, even at a rate that was unknown under Trump. Uh, the deficit under Trump raised by about a little under a trillion dollars every year up until 2020. Again, 2020 was COVID year. So everybody decided that we we're going to fire hose money at things. Um, but uh, then Joe Biden continued to fire hose money at things in 21, 22, and 23. Uh, you know, that obviously is, uh, in my opinion, bad economic policy. Uh, and then you get to the rhetoric and you get to the stuff that Donald Trump says. And as I've said before, my view is that on Donald Trump's epitaph, on his gravestone, it will say Donald Trump. He said a lot of shit. Uh, I, I think that Donald Trump does say a lot of things. I think that that is basically baked into the cake, which is why 
everyone who's bewildered by the polls is ignoring human nature, which is at the beginning, when you see something very shocking, it's very shocking. And then if you see it over and over and over and over for years on end, it is no longer shocking. It is just part of the background noise like tinnitus. It just becomes, you know, something that your brain adjusts for. Uh, and so do I like a lot of Donald Trump's rhetoric? No, and I never have. Do I think that that is dispositive as to his presidency? No, I do not. Uh, when it comes to Biden, again, I think he's underperforming economically. I think that his foreign policy has been really a, a, a problem. Even the things I think he's done right are, I think, band-aids for things that he created by doing wrong. Uh, and when it comes to his his own rhetoric, you can argue that it's grading on a curve because Trump was coming in with such wild rhetoric that just the maintenance of that wild rhetoric doesn't really change again the baseline. For Biden, he came in in the same way that Obama did on the sort of soaring rhetoric of American unity. I'm the president for all. Like Trump came in, and he's like, listen, I'm the president for, for what I am. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to say the things I want to say. I'm beyond the toilet. And I'm tweeting. And we're like, OK, you know, so that's what it is. With Biden, he came in with I'm a president for all Americans. I'm trying to unify everybody. And that pretty quickly broke down into a lot of oppositional language about his political opponents in particular, an attempt to lump in, for example, huge swaths of the conservative movement with the people who participated, for example, in January 6th or who are fans of January 6th. Um, and, um, you know, the, the the sort of lumping in of everybody into MAGA Republicans who wasn't personally signed on to a, an infrastructure bill with him. Uh, that, that sort of stuff, I think, has been truly terrible. I thought his Philadelphia speech was truly terrible. And again, I think that you do have the problem of he is no longer capable of certainly rhetorically unifying the country when every speech from him feels like watching Nick Walenda walk across a volcano on a tightrope. And it, it really is like you're, you're just sort of waiting for him to fall. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad to say. I mean, the other day he was speaking for what was, in effect, his campaign kickoff. And this is in Valley Forge. Uh, and, I mean, Jill rushed up there, like, off the, off the as soon as he was done, Jill rushed up there, uh, you know, like she'd been shot out of a cannon to, to come and try and guide him away so he didn't become the Shane Gillis Roomba. And, you know, that that's not really, you know, uh, I, I, let's put it this way. It, it, it does not quiet the soul to watch Joe Biden rhetorically. Again, it's a different problem than, than Trump's problem, but th that's my analysis. Uh, this is one of the areas where we get into this. I don't understand um, if there's like brain breaking happening or what's going on. I don't know what world we can ever live in where we say that Trump is less divisive for the country than Biden. I think it is so patently obvious. Trump is so divisive. Like not only does Trump make an enemy out of every person in the opposition party, he makes an enemy out of his own party and every single person around him. Like we all watched him bully, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions. We all watched him bully his own party on Twitter. We all watched like all of these people walk away from him. Um, even recently, I think um, his uh, the Secretary of Defense Esper and um, John Kelly, the chief of staff, were, you know, saying, I think Trump is a threat to democracy. Um, you know, you've got all of his prior people that were around him, some of his closest allies. You've got Bill Barr that won't co-sign a single thing that he says. Um, you've got all these people that he used to work with that all say Trump is a horrible, evil person. He is ineffective as a leader. He doesn't accomplish anything. And he didn't. You know, to say that Biden has failed at bipartisanship when, you know, we've gotten the CHIPS Act, we've gotten the IRA, we've gotten the uh, ARP, we've gotten the bipartisan infrastructure bill, when we've gotten like all this major legislation legislation that is working in this historically divided Congress, as opposed to Trump that got us tax cuts and deficit spending. Um, I, I don't understand where we ever are in this world where Biden is somehow 
more divisive than Trump. Even the speeches that Ben is bringing up, I, they, they always bring up, I remember that one, um, I think we might have even done it on our episode, the, the one speech that Biden gave where at one point that like the background is red. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the Philly speech I referenced. Yeah. yeah, and they're like, oh my God, it's over. This is the end. And then meanwhile, you've got Donald Trump, you know, coming into office saying things like, if you burn the flag, you should have your citizenship revoked. Or talking about MS uh, DNC, that I'm going to investigate every single one of these uh, media organizations for corruptness. I'm going to open the libel and defamation law. I'm going to take all of these guys to court. Um, You've got this weird Project 2025 stuff where, um, is it John Paschal, I think, uh, is talking about, uh, you know, we're going to investigate all of these people and we're going to try to throw crimes at all these people. Uh, Trump is like the most divisive president I think we've ever had in, in, at least in in my lifetime of being um, an, an American citizen. And the rhetoric from him is just, it's on a whole other level in terms of the demonization of political opponents. I mean, this is a guy that's known for giving his political opponents bad nicknames, <laughs> right? Like, that's what Trump does. Um, you know, like, it, it's funny, but even as a resident of Florida, if Florida had another natural disaster, do you think Trump would withhold aid? Because you had, uh, I think that was one of the few nice things that DeSantis actually said about Biden was that like, hey, listen, you know, when the buildings collapsed in, I think that was Miami Beach, yeah, that, um, you know, for the hurricane stuff that Biden was there, he was saying, if you guys need aid, however many billions, you can have it. Meanwhile, Trump, I think, was threatening to withhold federal funding from blue states that wouldn't, um, I think it had to do with the National Guard stuff, the deployment of the National Guard, that they weren't like doing enough for the riots. And and, uh, Trump was threatening to withhold aid from some of these blue states. Um, yeah, Trump is literally the most divisive person in the world. I don't see how on any metric he is ever succeeding in the divisive category. In terms of the economy, I do think it's funny that Republicans are very keen to say that like, well, we can't really grade Trump, you know, post-COVID because obviously COVID messed everything up, which is fair, but pre-COVID what did Trump do? Yeah, he did He did deficit spending tax cuts. He presided over historic low interest rates and an economy that was already like like blazing past the final years of Obama. We were posting all-time highs in all the stock markets in 2013 onwards. Um, you know, unemployment rates were falling. Now under Biden, unemployment rates are even lower than they were under Trump. But uh, it, it sucks that for Trump, we can say, well, we can't really hold him accountable for 2020. That was COVID. Well, all we have for Biden is post-COVID. We don't have any pre-COVID Biden uh, you know, economy. And it was the same thing for Obama too, coming in right after the housing collapses well. And it sucks that Republicans are able to walk out of office, you know, having burned the entire American society to the ground economically. And now we've got to try to evaluate, okay, well, what did Obama do during his first two to three to four years just trying to recover from where uh, the housing crash left it? And then we look at Biden now, who's trying to recover from COVID. And now we're grading him on a, on a totally different scale than what Trump is being graded on. Yeah, that that sucks, I think. Can uh, we can comment go into- on the foreign policy? On the foreign policy, <clears throat> I'm going to be honest, I am a, um, I am very liberal. I'm very not progressive. Uh, I'll probably come off as more hawkish than others uh, because I'm not a big fan of this, which also, if I mean, if Ben agrees, like I think uh, people like people like Trump are going to be the most dovish isolationist people ever. They don't want to do anything uh, internationally. They just want to, you know, protect America, be at home, protect our economy, don't do anything uh, internationally, which is why he was constantly undermining NATO uh, and constantly, you know, attacking all of the, the European Union and, you know, cheering on the UK for Brexiting away from the EU. I think that being said, um, I think that Biden has done a phenomenal job uh, when it comes to foreign policy. I think that the coalition building was so important for Ukraine, Russia, and I'm so happy that he decided to go to our European allies and our NATO allies and try to build a coalition of people to help Ukraine so that that wasn't only the United States. 
Personally, especially after doing a whole bunch of research, I do tend to side with Israel over um, Palestine and a lot of the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. I'm glad that Biden, while remaining a staunch defender of Israel, is trying to rein in some of the more aggressive posturing towards uh, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. I'm, I'm proud that Biden said, hey, listen, we're going to delay some of these attacks. Hey, listen, we are going to allow humanitarian aid here. Hey, listen, we are going to try to, uh, you know, not kill as many Palestinian people down there while still, you know, signaling that he would be a staunch supporter of um of Israel in in the conflict assuming the civilian casualties don't go too high um for foreign policy i mean blemishes i mean like the, the, the biggest one you can give to biden is afghanistan and the poll out there but man are we going to talk about you know the uh, inspector general report that says that one of the biggest reasons why the afghanistan pullout was so disastrous was because of the doha accords where donald trump headed talks that didn't even include the afghanistan army uh, i mean like these were disasters like when when biden took office we had 2500 troops left in afghanistan like what was the options even uh, afforded to biden at that point um obviously you've got the abandonment of the kurds in northern syria to, you know for the turkish armies to lay waste to um I can talk about Iran and North Korea, although I'm not sure where uh, Ben would land on those. But yeah, that's a broadly. Yeah, well, that's, that's a lot from both. That, you you, you, you want to pick pick at something where you disagree with here? Well, I mean, th th there's a lot. So mm -hmm. I mean, so I want to ask a few questions on each one of these. Yeah, sure. Uh, so let's let's talk about divisiveness mm -hmm. for a second. So I, there's no one who can make the case that Donald Trump is not divisive. Yeah, of course he's incredibly divisive. It's a given. Mm -hmm. Do you treat? Biden's rhetoric with the same level of seriousness that you treat Trump's rhetoric, or sh I should probably put that the other way around. Should we treat Trump's rhetoric with the same level of seriousness as Joe Biden or say Barack Obama's rhetoric? Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna try to be concise when I say this. Broadly speaking, especially in studying Israel-Palestine and Ukraine-Russia, I try not to take politicians at their word because sometimes they just say stuff to say stuff. I understand that. But broadly speaking, I'm gonna look at the rhetoric and the actions and I am gonna grade them the same. So yes, I would hold Biden and Trump to the same standard. Right, so my feeling is, and this is one area where, for clarification, we're gonna have a division, mm -hmm. uh, is that I, of course, don't treat Trump's rhetoric in the same way that I treat Biden's or Obama's. He's utterly uncalibrated and he says whatever he wants to at any given time and it doesn't even match up with his policy very often. Can uh, I ask you, like, for our head of state, our chief executive, shouldn't rhetoric be arguably one of the most important things that he does? I mean, like, the answer would be yes. And now I've been given a choice between a person who I think in calibrated ways says things that are divisive and a person who in uncalibrated ways says things that are divisive. And so the evidence that Joe Biden is divisive is every poll taken since essentially August of, of 2021. He he is, by all available metrics, incredibly divisive. A huge percentage of Americans are deeply unhappy, not only with his performance, but don't believe he's a uniter. They're, they're, that, that's just the reality. And that may just be a reflection. I mean, honestly, we may be putting too much on Trump or Biden personally. It may just mm -hmm. be that the American people themselves are rhetorically divided because of social media and social media can, in fact, be accessible. And, I would, and all one that. thing that I would ask you about that, though, sure. is I agree, especially when you look at the favorability. But sometimes w when I look at these polls, when you start to disaggregate them by party, I wonder if it's actually is Biden historically divisive or um, I'm trying to think of a really polite way to say this. The people that like Trump worship Trump. I don't know. I like one of the most prescient things that Trump could have probably ever said was that I could kill someone on Fifth Street and nobody would so, hold me accountable. So is it really that Biden is strictly divisive or is it that every single Trump supporter will always say that Trump is great and no, always I, say that the, Biden the, is bad? The reason I would say that, that Biden is in fact historically divisive is mm -hmm. because Republicans felt much more strongly about Barack Obama than, than Joe Biden actually. But they didn't um, feel as strongly about Trump as they did about like Romney or McCain. Right. In in what way? I mean, and like, that, the, the allegiance to Trump. Oh, no, there's certainly more allegiance to Trump than there is to Romney or McCain, largely because Trump won in 2016. But beyond that, 
the the point that I'm making is that if you're looking at the stats in terms of divisiveness, mm-hmm. Republicans always find the Democratic president divisive. The question is where the rest of the country is. Mm-hmm. And right now, there are a lot of Democrats who either don't agree with Biden or you know find him divisive. There are a lot of independents who find him divisive. So when you're when we're comparing these things, I don't think they're leagues apart in terms of the divisive effects of what they say. Right, think- and, and, and I'm separating that off from like the inherent content of what they say, because obviously what Trump says is is more divisive just on like the raw level. I mean, if he's insulting people as opposed to Joe Biden doing MAGA Republicans, like if I were to just, if I were an alien come down from space and look at these two statements, I'd say this one's more divisive than this one. Mm-hmm. But then there's the reality of being a human being in the world. And that is everyone has baked Donald Trump into the cake. And Joe Biden, again, started off with a patina of being non-divisive and now has emerged as divisive. I, if you don't mind, I actually want to get to the, the foreign policy questions because this one is actually slightly less interesting to me. Yeah, just one quick thing, I guess, like, because we can say the reality of it and we can look at opinion polls. What if we look at like legislative accomplishments? Like Biden is working on a 50-50 divided Senate. Donald Trump had both House of Congress and the Supreme Court and got like no major legislation passed. Well, but. I mean, he, he, he did lose Congress in 2018, but yeah, sure. But, but prior to that, because pri- we got the uh, we got the infrastructure bill. I think in one year, which Trump promised for his entire presidency, didn't get anywhere. Well, on it. It, I mean, yes, his his Republican base was not in favor of mass spending on infrastructure, and neither am I. So th- there's that. I think that's sure. mostly a state and local. But they issue. were in favor of mass spending for tax cuts. That's not a spending. I mean, that we. I mean, it, effectively, it, it is right. Like effectively, it's not. Well, if, if, if you're, if if you're if cutting you, tax receipts, but you're not changing the level of spending, like Biden did with the uh, IRA. I mean, uh, again, well, we, we have we have a fundamental philosophical difference here. I think that when you, when the government takes my money, mm-hmm. that is not that is not the government somehow being more fiscally responsible. And when the government allows me to keep my money, I don't see that as the government spending. I see that as my money and the government is taking less of it. That's great. But at the end of the day, the government is still going to be in a deficit spending and they're going to have to borrow money from the treasury. Right. We have a spending problem. In other yeah. words, not a receipts problem is the sure. case that I'm making. The, sure. the problem with, with Donald Trump is not that he lowered taxes. The United States has one of the most progressive tax systems on the planet. And in fact, if you wish to have a European style social welfare state, what you actually need is to tax the middle class to death. I mean, the, the reality is that the top 20% of the American population pays literally all net taxes in the United States after mm-hmm. after state benefits and all of this. Sure. So if, if you actually wanted to have the kind of social welfare state that many liberals seem to want to have, like Northern Europe, for example, mm-hmm. you'd actually have to tax people who make forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars sure. And I don't want that. Hybrid. I agree with that. So but how do you explain the lack of legislation? I mean- If he's like such a uniter. Because I think the Republican Party itself is, is quite divided. And I think that Trump's- But isn't that his job? He's the head of the Republican Party. He's the president, Republican president of the United States. I mean, again, I don't think that Joe Biden has passed wildly historic legislation. The other infrastructure than, bill was the largest- like. So le- here, here's yeah. the problem. If you're a Republican, uh-huh. the only bills that you can get consensus on tend to be bills that either- that that let's be real about this, that are tax cuts Mm -hmm. because as you would, I think, agree with, Mm -hmm. when it comes to polling data, Americans constantly say they want to cut the government. And then the minute you ask them which program, they have no idea what they're, they're, right, exactly. And so trying to, it's much harder to come up with a bill to cut things than it is to come up with a bill to add things coming up, which is why spending was out of control under, under Trump as well. But there are some Republicans who still don't want to spend on those things, right? So inherently the, the task that this goes back to the first question. The task that Republicans think government is there to do is different than the task that Democrats think that government is there to do. So the way that, that the very metric of success for a Democratic president versus a Republican president, namely, for example, pieces of legislation passed, as a Republican, one of my goals is to pass nearly no legislation because I don't actually want the government involved in more areas of, of our life. I want to ask a couple questions on the foreign policy. Sure. Front. Yeah. Okay, wait, real, real quick. Just So for instance, like Donald Trump wanted to punish China and he wanted to bring uh, microprocessor manufacturing to the United States. Uh, Biden did that with legislation, with the CHIPS Act. Uh, you talk about like spending being out of control. And I, I mean, I can agree 
agree with that. I think anybody that looks at the numbers has to agree with that. But why not pass legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is at least like spending neutral? Right. Like, why are there not bills where Donald Trump could take? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that whenever the government says something is spending neutral, it rarely materializes that way. That is not going to be a spending neutral bill. Sure. But there's a difference between like, at least they say it's spending neutral versus this is a $500 billion Uh, bill over like 10 years. I mean, well, but again, I don't see a tax cut as a matter of quote on spending neutrality. The big problem is they keep spending, not that they are allowing me to keep the money that I earned and they did not earn. But okay. So so. then just to understand, so if somebody just did massive like reductions in tax receipts, so tax cut after tax cut after tax cut, but they didn't change spending at all, you wouldn't consider that like an increase in deficit spending or out of control spending, you would just say they're just tax cuts. No, the opposite. I would, I would consider it a wild. I would, I would consider it a wild overspending. Okay. Meaning, meaning so then that, was it under Trump then when he did the tax? I mean, the, the deficit spending, by the way, under under Biden is way worse than it was under. Of course, Trump. but we're in post COVID, right? COVID ended effectively. I mean, you live in Florida. COVID effectively ended in the state of Florida by the middle of 2021. Yeah, I mean, even, well, if, you, even why, if you're a like vaccine the, fan, by like April May of 2021, mm-hmm. there was wide availability of vaccines, whether or not you like the vaccines. Yeah, and at that point. We were done. I agree, I mean, but and, like we're in a post, like how many trillions of dollars have been dumped in worldwide that are like leading to inflation, right? The inflation is like a worldwide uh, issue right now because of the economy shutting down for a year or two. It's not like those effects are gone in one year, right? COVID might be gone, but the after effects of all the stimulus spending and the unemployment and everything the else. The definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So pouring more money on top of that makes for more inflation. That's what it does. Sure. I agree. Uh, Agree. Um, but like there's also the definition of when do you deficit spend is when economies are headed for recessions, right? Rather than when economies are doing really well, like they were under Trump and he was deficit spending. Whereas Biden can at least make the argument that I should I ought to be deficit spending because the economy is heading for a potential so recession. The, the, right? So here's the thing. I don't think that the economy was actually headed for a session. In, in fact, if you look at the economic Every statistics. Every economist said that it was. Every no, it, okay. Like, they're still was, saying that there's like a recession coming, right? Right, so but that, that was largely because of the after effects of inflation, meaning if you inflate the economy, what you're going to end up doing is bursting a bubble. And then when that bubble bursts, you'll get a recession. I mean, that was the basic idea, right? The idea, the question was whether you're going to get a soft landing. But if you actually look at, for example, the employment statistics or the economic growth statistics in the United States, what they look like under the last year's Obama and then Trump, I mean, this mm-hmm. is what the chart looks like, is it looks like this. And then it hits March of 2020. It goes like that. Yeah. Right. And then by like September, it bounces back up, right? It's a V-shaped recovery. And then it starts to peter out. Sure. And a lot because of the American recovery plan, right? That Biden did as well. I mean, four million jobs. Yeah. No, I don't. I'm not going to attribute it to that because the, the rates of growth in in job growth from September, October, November were actually very similar to the rates of job growth after Joe Biden took office. What you see is actually kind of a, a straight line. I mean, what, what the chart looks like. Get, okay. In any case, okay. okay so yeah, on the foreign policy stuff, yeah. this is getting yeah. abstruse. But in, on, the, <laughs> on the on the foreign policy stuff, um, so the the questions that I have mm-hmm. with regard to to Biden on foreign policy, uh, very. Very simple question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the situation in the Middle East is better now than it was under Donald Trump? Mm, uh, probably. Um, that's a hard one. The factors Why? that I'm making right now are uh, like, obviously, you've got the Israel-Palestinian war that's going on right now, which is kind of bad. But like, broadly speaking, I'm not sure how much that affects the Middle East as much as like the collapse of Syria. 2013 Syrian civil war sent millions of immigrants throughout all of Europe. Which that, was under? Um, which was under Obama and continued right. under Trump. Trump didn't do anything to alleviate any of the Syrian civil war. Um, in, in term, like, why did Syria end up as a preserve of Russia again? <clears throat> how did Syria end up as a preserve of Russia? Yes. Why did it end up being essentially a client state of Russia? Um, I know that Putin enjoys access to the ports down there. Um, I don't know. You tell it, I mean, the reason is because Barack Obama suggested that there was a red line that would be drawn in the face of chemical weapons use. Bashar Assad then used chemical sure. weapons in Syria, and Barack Obama was un- unwilling to then 
essentially create consequences for Syria in the form of any sort of Western strike. And so instead, he outsourced it to Russia. This is 2013, 2014. <clears throat> sure. Right? Do you so think the, there might have been some hesitancy after like seeing how Libya ended up that maybe us like intervening? Who, who was hardcore? president during Libya? Uh, Obama? Yeah. I mean, like, so the, the, sure, but, the, but what, what does that have to do with anything? I'm just I mean, no, the, like, the, there might have been like a mistake learned. The point that, that I'm like, making our... is that actually the Middle East, I mean, just historically speaking, was historically good under Donald Trump. I mean, it's very difficult to make the case that either before or after Trump were better than during Donald Trump. Was like, it, this is I mean, area of, the yes. Syrian, I don't think that, that Trump contributed to the Syrian situation in improving much. Um, I, well, think I mean, he, he, wrecked a lot of, he did wreck ISIS, which was in the- I mean, ISIS had been getting wrecked by the Kurds in Iraq, by every single person, by uh, Assad's there's, army, there's by Putin, by Turkey, literally everybody was fighting against ISIS at that point. The, 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 there's a spike in violence, and then the, mm -hmm. the Trump, I mean, you get credit for when you're president, presumably. I mean- Things got better with ISIS under Trump. I mean, yeah, they did. I mean, things, things got were, worse with ISIS under Obama. They, for sure. He called them the JV that, squad. Sure. And then they became not the JV squad. Yeah, but I don't know if ISIS is originating in Syria um, and uh, Baghdadi and all of the growth of that is necessarily Obama's fault. I know that we like to say that Obama created ISIS. I don't know if you say that, but I've heard that saying a lot. I think that's a little bit simplistic. Um, I, I don't think that when, sure. when I'm looking at like actions that presidents have taken, the the Big, the biggest criticism I have for like Middle Eastern policy is I think the Doha Accords were a disaster. And I think that's like one of the biggest blemishes that we have right now. I would also argue that moving the um, embassy to Jerusalem was also kind of silly um, and arguably contributed to some of the conflict we see right now. No, exactly. Israel and I'll, I'll argue precisely the opposite, especially given the fact that after the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. the Abraham Accords continued to sign and actually expand. And that if Donald Trump had been elected, I have no doubt in my mind that Saudi Arabia would now be a part of the Abraham Accords. In fact, that was basically pre-negotiated. Uh, and then when Joe Biden took office, Joe Biden took a very anti-Saudi stance on a wide variety of issues. The, the biggest single effect in the Middle East of Joe Biden's presidency, and again, I agree with you that not every foreign policy issue can be laid at the hands of a president. Joe Biden's main approach to the Middle East was very similar to the Obama approach, which is why the Middle East was chaotic under Obama and chaotic under Biden. And that was to alienate allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel, and instead to try to make common cause or cut deals with Iran. What that did is incentivize terrorism from Iran. What we're watching in the Middle East is Iran attempting to use every one of its terror proxies in the Middle East, and it was specifically launched in an attempt to avoid what Biden actually was trying to do, which was good, which was after two years of failure with Saudi Arabia, try to bring them into the Abraham Accords, right? That was what was burgeoning at the end of, la at the end of last year. And Iran saw that, and Iran decided that they were going to throw a grenade into the middle of those negotiations mm -hmm. by essentially activating Hamas. Hamas activates, Hamas commits October 7th. Israel, as a sovereign nation state, has to respond to the murder of 1,200 of its citizens and the taken kidnapping of, of 240. Israel has to do that not only to go after its own hostages and try to restore them, but also to reestablish military deterrence in the most violent region of the world. Hezbollah gets active on Israel's northern border. Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy. They get active on the northern border. The The... Houthis in Yemen get active. These are all the only reason all this is happening at the same time is because Iran is doing this, right? Mm -hmm. But I, not but just that. They're, they're, they are threatening global shipping. Sure. If you're talking about the effects of global supply lines, which I totally agree had mm -hmm. a major inflationary effect on the economy thanks to COVID, mm -hmm. right now the cost of shipping is nearly double what it was just a few weeks ago. And that is because a ragtag group of Houthi barbarians are attacking international shipping and forcing everybody to stop using the Babel Mandib's freight instead of going around the Cape of Good Hope sure. in, in Africa. All of that is the result of the fact that Joe Biden reoriented the United States in the very early days in favor of a more pro-Iranian stance. He appointed Robert Malley to negotiate the Iran deal, who, as it turns out, was using proxies. He, many of his aides were actually war taking money from Iran. Ra the, the, the Biden administration, literally one of their first acts was to delist the Houthis as a terror organization and end sanctions against the Houthis. 
These are all moves that, that Biden made very early on. They were disastrous moves. But when it comes to domestic policy, I think he hasn't been nearly as damaged wait, 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 on domestic let's, policy as he has been on foreign policy. Sure, sure. So just on a couple of Middle Eastern things. So one of the big things that threw the Middle East into disaster was what we are all traumatized by it now, was the Iraq evasion, which I'm not a Republican president. Sure. Agree with that, right? Sure. Yes. The, the deposition of Saddam Hussein and everything that followed after probably contributed more to the growth of ISIS and the destabilization of that entire region, probably more than anything else. I think that under pr prior to Bush, um, for Clinton, and even at the beginning of Bush's presidency, we were on some kind of road to normalcy um, with Iran, which I think has to happen, whether we like them or not, um, until Bush, for whatever reason, decides to throw Iran into the axis of evil. And I need some evidence that we were on a road to normalcy with Iran in the 1990s. We do in the wait what that we're on a road to normalcy with Iran in the 1990s. I, My I understanding is that yeah, from the late 90s and prior to the axis of evil uh, labeling of Iran, that there was going to be some path forward to where we could start to normalize relationships with them. I, I I find that very difficult to believe, and I don't see a lot of evidence. I mean, we can just disagree on that. Sure, but, okay, but yeah, sure, the, we can disagree on that. But I know that the, once the, they by got way, the, 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 the after effects. Just mm -hmm. a quick note: mm -hmm. the after effect of the Iraq War that was the most devastating was the increase in power of Iran. I agree. Yeah, because of the destabilization yes. of Iraq and Iraq not having a uh, a government there that was functional for at least a decade. And was in uh, fact a Sunni government, right? Originally, it was a Sunni government. Disbanding the, the Sunni army was one of the worst things that the Bush Probably, administration yeah, did. Banning all the former Ba'ath parties, all sectarian, the yes. yeah, all horrible under Republican president. Um, but Don't disagree that the uh, yeah that that probably contributed more to ISIS, uh, to the growth of power in Iran, maybe even to the destabilization of Syria. Probably more than anything that Obama did. Um, also, the uh, when, when we look at Iran funding people in the region, I don't disagree with that as well. I think Iran is the number one instigator of bad guy things right now in the Middle East. Iran, um, the IRGC, I supported when Donald Trump killed Soleimani. I think that was a great thing. Um, um, I, I think that Iran is a major problem. However, I don't know if the path forward is constantly being a belligerent to Iran or trying to figure out some road to normalcy. I don't know if the collapse of Iran um, or the destruction of that country, considering how unpopular the Ayatollah even is there, like the citizens of Iran, I don't think are big supporters of the government there. Um, I, I feel like moving on a path where, you know, let's do our nuclear inspections. We had that um, Iranian nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of. Let's do the nuclear inspections. Make sure you're not on a way to nuclear weapons. Let's unfreeze some funds. Let's move in some direction where we get on a good term with you. I feel like that's the most important thing that needs to happen in the Middle East. As much as people like to look at the Abraham Accords, who cares if, what, what was it? Uh, Bahrain, I think Oman, um, I think UAE Sudan, and Morocco. the UAE and Morocco. Yeah, or something like all of these people even Saudi Arabia already have like de facto normalization with Israel anyway. They're all trading. No, all this is, I mean, to, to pretend that, that anybody even 15 years ago would have been talking about normalization, Saudi Arabia and Israel is insane. They, I mean, that's, they that's already, insane. they were already on that path. They, they, in, they had already been, tra they were already de facto a, trading partners with each other. That, 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 they had already a, been collaborating that's a, and that's doing That's a it. wild claim that, that Israel and Saudi Arabia were going to normalize 15 years ago? 15 that, years ago might have been a wild claim. That, that's what, that's, but after that, Turkey, um, after Jordan, and then in the past like 20 years of like economic relations and ties with each other, all of the leadership in the Middle East, and you'll agree with this, look at Israel and they go, okay, well, we've got Palestinians who, you know, God bless them, do nothing. <laughs> and then you've got Israel, which is uh, on a on a region with no natural resources to somehow become like an economic giant, they're good to trade with, their population is educated, they, you know, have military power. Um, all of the leadership in these Middle Eastern countries are wanting to be friendly with Israel and are engaging in trade de facto with Israel. And the idea that like the UAE and Bahrain were brought in <clears throat> to say like, oh, well, now we're going to officially say this. I, I just- Those, were, those were the first steps toward obviously the formation of a new Middle East in which economics would predominate over sectarian conflict. The chief obstacle to that is Iran. I agree. The notion that, you, that, that negotiations with the Ayatollah were going to be a solution to any of this is but do we think absolutely is, benign. Are, are the, is it the Abraham Accords that's convincing Saudi Arabia to take a stance against Iran? 
No, I mean, no, Saudi Arabia they're, really no, yeah, uh, they're already fighting with each other, right? Like, no, uh, I don't think the Abraham Accords moved us any closer towards any type of real peace in the region. No, the point what has I, to happen I, is something has to happen with Iran. Look, there has to be some diplomatic well, bilateral communication there. No, what has to happen is the containment of Iran, which was what was in <clears throat> which was what was taking place with the increased normalization with the Sunni Arab world and Israel combined with significant economic sanctions. The, the, the notion that, that <clears throat> there's this far-fetched notion in, in foreign policy circles that diplomacy can sort of be wish cast out of thin air. That if you sit around a table that you can always come to an agreement with somebody. The Ayatollahs do not have common interests with the United States. They do not. And this idea that they are willing to take money in exchange for, for example, some sort of peaceful acquiescence to Israel's existence is obviously untrue. Hasn't They're that literally historically, hasn't that been the case though? That you've had a region with tons of sectarian violence for a long time and then finally Turkey was like, you know what? This isn't worth it. The United States paid them a lot of money. They had conversations with Israel. And you know what? The, the economy, the economic gains. Well, I mean, the, the, the relationship. Of, I mean, same thing with Jordan, get, same thing with Syria. Not to get into Turkish call. politics. But, sure, they, yeah. but, but, the, <laughs> um, but, but the, the situation with Turkey was actually quite warm between Israel and Turkey in the 90s when you had the, the you know, sort of secular Muslim regime. In the 90s, of, but they signed peace in. Turk in place. And, and now Erdogan is, has joined in the fray. And Erdogan is significantly more radical sure, than what I'm came before. So sorry. Um, if I said Turkey, I meant Egypt. My bad. Yeah. Well, okay. So Egypt. Yeah. Right. So. Um, so yeah. So yeah, yeah. in terms of like Egypt and Jordan, right, were the first two. You need big ones. Uh, So you, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. You need. Is it possible that you could theoretically come to a deal with Iran only with a new leadership group? Okay. This is true for every peace agreement in the region. Mm -hmm. You you could not. Israel could not have made peace with. Well, they made peace for, with Egypt, uh, and, no, and no, no, no. Sadat was the leader for Yom Kippur. Right. He did not make peace with Nasser. Right. Sure. The point is that this is a different regime. You need a different regime. This but is I'm saying the, the same regime that did the part of the Yom Kippur War was the same regime that negotiated peace with Israel. I mean, that's true. Mm -hmm. It is also true that that is a relationship that could be cultivated specifically because it was Sadat who made clear he was going to come to the table. Mm -hmm. Have the Iranians ever made clear that they would come to the table over, for example, the existence of the state of Israel? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a thing that's going to happen. But I think literally, people probably felt proxy, the same. Every, every single one of their proxy groups, every one of them, not only calls for the destruction of the state of Israel, mm -hmm. they also call for the destruction of America. I mean, this is literally the Houthi slogan. They're busy hitting ships, and their slogan is literally, Allahu Akbar, death to America, death to the Jews, death to Israel. It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but that, and it's not all that catchy, but that is, in fact, their slogan. The notion that the regime that propagates that is going to be approached with diplomacy is not only wrong, the problem is that... We, we, it's easy to say that the stakes of diplomacy are, are okay, well, so we try to talk, right? Jaw, jaw is better than war, war. Sure. The only problem is that in the Middle East, weakness is taken as a sign that aggression might be an appropriate response. That is how things work in the Middle East. And the fact that Barack, uh, that, that Joe Biden, rather, came into office with an orientation toward continuing the Biden, the, the Obama policies in Iran has led to conflagrations, these sort of brush fires breaking out everywhere that Iran has borders with either the West or Israel or both, right? Any place that's happening is leading to brush fires because, again, the logic of violence in the Middle East is not quite the logic of violence in other places in the world. By the way, I think the logic of violence in the Middle East is actually closer to what most international politics looks like than we than we wish that it were. I mean, I think that's part of what's happening in Ukraine as well. So you right? think which, which for, brings me, by the way, here's my question about Ukraine. Uh, sure. I well, just real quick, and then you can yeah, answer this one So you think that for Iran, right, a country that has been sanctioned for God knows how many years now, you think that for Iran, just continuing to sanction them and contain them is an effective way, is more effective than trying to engage them in bilateral or multilateral peace talks? Yes, so, 100%. Okay. And the proof is in the pudding. Before we go to Ukraine, can I ask about Israel? So you're both mostly in agreement 
But what is, well, is I don't know about to say that. But. Okay, but <laughs> as I'm learning, mm -hmm. uh, what is Israel doing right? What is Israel doing wrong in this very specific current war in Gaza? Um, I mean, frankly, I think that what Israel's doing wrong is if I were Israel, mm -hmm. okay, like again, America's interests are not coincident with Israel's interests. If if I were an Israeli leader, I would have swiveled up and I would have knocked the bleep out of Hezbollah early. What does that I think mean? That, uh, what does that mean? So I, I would have, I would have, Yoav Gallant, who was the defense minister of Israel, was encouraging Netanyahu, who's the prime minister, and the war cabinet, including Benny Gantz. So whenever people talk about the Netanyahu government, that's not what's in place right now. There's a unity war government in place that includes the political opposition. The reason I point that out is because there are a lot of people politically who will suggest that the actions Israel is currently taking are somehow the manifestation of a right-wing government. Israel currently does not have a quote-unquote right-wing government. They have a unity government that includes the opposition. In any case, Yoav Gallant was urging in the very early days of the war that Israel should turn north, and instead of hitting Hamas, they should actually take the opportunity to knock Hezbollah out, because Hezbollah is significantly more dangerous to the existence of the state of Israel than Hamas. I actually agree with that. Uh, as far as what Israel has been doing wrong in the actual war, I mean, I think that, again, from an American perspective, I think that Israel is is doing pretty well. From an Israeli perspective, if I were Israeli, I would actually want Israel to be less loose about sending its soldiers in on the ground level. So Israel's attempting to minimize civilian casualties, and the cost of that has been the highest military death toll that Israel has had since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I mean, I personally know, through one degree of separation, three separate people have been killed in Gaza. And that's because they're going in door to door. It's because they're they're attempting to minimize civilian casualties, and they're losing a lot of guys in in this particular in this particular war. Um, you know, the, the the problem that Israel has had, historically speaking, is that Israel got very complacent about its own security situation. They believed the technology was going to somehow correct for the hatred on the other side of the wall. That very okay, so our people have to live underground for two weeks at a time while some rockets fall. But at least it's not a war, and that complacence, you know, bred what happened on October 7th. So the, to, to me, what Israel did wrong was years and years and years of complacence and belief in an Oslo system that is at root a failure because you cannot make a peace agreement with people who do not want to make peace with you. Uh, so that, that that's what I think Israel is doing wrong. I, I have a feeling that there's gonna be wide divergence on this point. Um, maybe. Uh, so uh, in terms of broadly speaking, uh, I generally oppose settlement expansion is a thing that Israel does incorrectly that I think is kind of like provocative to at least all the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. And I probably energizes hatred in the uh, Gaza Strip for them as well. In terms of conducting, uh, in terms of conducting warfare, uh, the one thing that I always say to everybody, uh, especially Americans, is you can't evaluate things from an American perspective. It's very stupid. It happened a lot with Ukraine where people are like, oh, well, didn't they work with the Nazis? And like, weren't the Soviets the good guys? And it's like, well, in, in other parts of the world, it's not quite as simple. Uh, um, and I think the same is true for Israel-Palestine, that a lot of Americans will analyze the conflict as just being one between only Israel and Palestine, which it's not. It's a conflict between Israel and then Palestine, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and Iran. Right now it is. Um, I think that the, however, one area where I'll break with Ben is, is I think that minimizing civilian casualties and everything is very, very, very important. I think on the Israeli side, I don't think it's important so that the U.S. will stay with them because I think the U.S. is probably going to stick with Israel as long as they don't do anything crazy. And I don't even think it matters for the international community. It doesn't, definitely doesn't matter for the U.N. because <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, however, I think it's really, really, really important that I think that in the Middle East, broadly speaking, I think that leadership, especially in the Gulf, has gotten over the Palestinian uh, issue. I think that leadership is kind of like, they don't care as much anymore. But the populations 
still care quite a bit. And I think that the main issue that Israel could run into is if the civilian death toll does climb too high, and if they start to hit this, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 number of civilian casualties, they run the risk of the civilian populations in the surrounding Middle Eastern states becoming so antagonistic towards Israel that they start to take steps back towards normalization in the region. So for instance, I know that um, Bahrain, I think, already pulled out their ambassador um, to Israel. My guess is going to be it's temporary. Um, I know that on the... um, on the public speaking side, you've got a lot of people condemning Israel for the attacks. And on the private side, you've got people telling Israel, please kill all of Hamas because this is untenable and nobody wants to work in the situation. Um, I don't know if this ended up being true or not. I'm guessing it didn't. But I saw on a couple of Twitter accounts, it was leaked that potentially Saudi Arabia was considering installing a government in the West Bank that they would run. Um, uh, no, I mean, I, I think Israel would love nothing better than that. But that is for not sure. The yeah, Saudi, okay. One of the big problems in the Middle East is literally no one wants to preside over the Palestinians. Yes. No one. So I Arab think states, that, Israel, no one. No yeah. one so I think the issue is, and, and I think, and I'm largely actually, I'm very sympathetic towards the Palestinians because I think that for, um, since 48 and onwards, I think that all of the Arab states super gassed them up on that. They wanted the Palestinians to fight because they wanted to fight with Israel. Um, however, as time has gone on and they realize that the, it's kind of a lost cause, states have started to drop out. So you're getting these bilateral uh, peace treaties with um Egypt and with Jordan, you're getting multilateral agreements like the Abraham Accords. And now the Palestinians are looking around and like, okay, well, you guys told us to fight all this time. And now the only people that we have supporting us are Iranian proxies. Um, So the Palestinians are in a very weird spot where they've like lost all their support. Um, Yeah, I think that I think that Israel, what I would say to be quote unquote critical of Israel is Israel needs to take strong steps towards peace that probably involves them enduring some undue hardship. So not the October 7th attacks because Jesus, that's way too much. But, you know, other types of, you know, attacks that they might have to deal with that might cause some civilians to die that they don't come out over the top with and and retaliate with if there's ever going to be peace in that region. However, another thing that I've always said is a huge problem between Israel and Palestine is I think that both sides think that if they continue to fight, it will be good for them. But the problem is one side is delusional. Uh, Israel, I think Israel wants to continue to fight because they get justifications for uh, the annexation of the Golan Heights. They get justifications for expansions, especially in Area C that I that think they're probably going to try to annex soon. Uh, they get justifications for the increased military posturing uh, towards the Gaza Strip and the embargoes. And Israel is right that if the conflict continues, really the situation only improves for Israel over time. But the Palestinians also all believe that if they keep fighting, they thought this since 2000 under Arafat, that if they just keep fighting, they'll get better gains too, but that's not the case. Is there a difference between Palestinian citizens and the leadership when you say that? I love all people. I love all people around the world. And I think that when we analyze issues, I think that we have to be very honest with what the people on the ground think. And the idea that Hamas is just this one-off thing in the Gaza Strip is not only incorrect with the situation on the ground, it's also incredibly ahistorical. Um, And the idea that like the Palestinians in the West Bank, of which I believe the most recent polling shows, I want to say 75 to 80% support the October 7th attacks. Palestinians in general want to fight in violent conflict with Israel. That's not just the position of the government. That's not just people. There's a reason why Abbas doesn't want to do uh, elections in the West Bank. Uh, And it's because the Palestinian people really do want to fight with Israel. But to combat that problem is like, 
you have to get the UN on board. We've got to do an actual addressing of the Palestinian refugee problem, which is handled like a joke right now. Um, Iran has to be brought to the table in terms of negotiations. Uh, there has to be huge efforts made to economically revitalize these like Palestinian areas, even though they're one of the highest recipients of aid in the world. Um, you, you have to do something about the embargo and the blockade and the Gaza Strip, which isn't just maintained by Israel. It's also maintained by Egypt. You should ask why. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that have to happen to fix that problem. But the reality is, is I don't think Israel really wants to because they get to continue their expansion into the West Bank. And I don't think anybody around the world really cares that much. So in a month, we won't be talking. About I will argue with that. The yeah. idea that Israel does not want to end the conflict is belied by the history of what just happened with the Gaza Strip. So when we talk about settlements, for example, Israel did have settlements inside the Gaza Strip. There were 8,000 Jews who were living inside the Gaza Strip in Gush Katif. Uh, up until 2005, they, they, they withdrew all of those people. I mean, took them literally out of their homes. Uh, and the result was not the burgeoning of a of a better attitude toward the state of Israel with regard to, for example, you know, the, the Palestinian population in Gaza. In fact, it was more radical in Gaza than it was in the West Bank. Uh, the 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 result was obviously the election of Hamas, the, the October 7th attacks in which unfortunately many civilians took place, uh, took part in the October 7th attacks. There's video of people rushing who are civilians and dressed in civilian clothing into uh, Israeli well, villages. Always the same thing. <laughs> well, no, no, that is that is 100% <laughs> true, obviously. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, Area C and Israel's, you know, supposed deep and abiding desire for territorial expansion in Area C, Area C, so for, for those who are not familiar with the Oslo Accords, and again, this is getting very abstruse, but the Oslo Accords are broken down into three areas of the West Bank. Area A is under full Palestinian control. That'd be like Janine and Nablus, the, the major cities, for example. There's Area B, which is mixed Israeli-Palestinian control, where Israel provides uh, some level of military security and control. Uh, and then there's Area C. And Area C was like to be decided later. It was left up for possible concessions to the Palestinian Authority if the Oslo Accords had moved forward. Those are disputed territories. There is building taking place in areas by both, actually, no one talks about this, but by, by Palestinians as well as Israelis. Uh, and the the you know question is whether if Israel stopped building, there have been many settlement freezes in the past, including some undertaken by Netanyahu. Netanyahu uh, and, and it actually has not done one iota of good in moving the ball forward in terms of actual negotiations. Again, the, the biggest problem is that the leadership for Palestinians has spent every day since really 67. It's not even 48 because after 40, between 48 and 67, Jordan was in charge of the West Bank and Egypt was in charge of the Gaza Strip. And at no point did either of those powers say, hey, maybe we ought to hand this over to an independent Palestinian state, which was originally the division that was that was promoted by the UN partition plan in 47. The, because of that, uh, the, the leadership post 67 and really starting in 64, the Palestine Liberation Organization was founded in 64 and it called for the liberation of the land in 64, they had the West Bank and they had the Gaza Strip. So they're talking about Tel Aviv. Uh, when it was founded in, in 64, the basic idea, as you know, kind of indicated by that, was Israel will not exist. And that was a promise that's been made by pretty much every Palestinian leader in Arabic to the people that they are talking to. Yasser Arafat famously would do this sort of thing. He'd speak in English and talk about how he wanted a two-state solution. And then he'd go back to his own people and say, this is a Trojan horse. And we're going to... If Israel could, if you think that Israeli parents want to send their kids at the age of 18 to go and monitor Janine and Nablus and be in, in Khan Yunus, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Israelis do not want that. In fact, Israelis didn't want that so much that they allowed rockets to fall in their cities for full on 18 years in order to avoid sending soldiers en masse back into the Gaza Strip. True, but I think Israel does want to continue to expand settlements into the West Bank, right? They want to continue to build. They want to have okay, all so, of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem as well. Well, I mean, East Jerusalem has already been annexed. So East Jerusalem is, according to Israel, a part of Israel. That's not a settlement. Sure. Okay, so there, there's that. With, with regard to, 
you know, does Israel have an interest in expanding settlements in the West Bank? What, why would they not until there's a peace partner? Sure, that's Meaning, what like, I mean. For, but I'm saying as long as the conflict continues, like, because even when you talk no, but about you, the, you, but No, but your suggestion is that they're incentivizing the conflict to continue so they can grab more land. Well, no, let me but be I, very clear. I don't yeah. think there's like a plan. Like, so some people say, for instance, uh, they'll take that one quote from Netanyahu and they'll try to say that like he was funding the people in the Gaza Strip by allowing Qatari money to come in, even though he was actually speaking in opposition to Abbas, allowing the Gaza Strip to fall for Netanyahu to clear it out for him and they give it back, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying, I'm not claiming those theories. I'm just saying that I think that Israel will take a relatively neutral stance towards conflict in, enduring because as long as the conflict endures and as long as the uh, settlements can expand, I think that benefits, I think that ultimately benefits Israel. The, 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 I think there would be very, let, let's put it this way. Uh -huh. If suddenly there arose among the Palestinians a deep and abiding desire for peace approved by a vast majority of the population with serious security guarantees, uh -huh. I think you'd be very hard pressed to find Israelis who would not be willing to at least consider that in return like for we're not like, expanding bathrooms in Efrat. I kind of, I would have agreed with you on October 6th. I think we're probably a year or two oh, away no, from no, that right now. No, though. no, but, yeah. it, but no, the, the point I'm making is that Israelis now realize that the entire peace process was a sham, meaning the people who are on the other side of the table were using it as a Trojan horse in the first place. The, the death of Oslo <laughs> is not the death of Israeli hopefulness. It's the death of the illusion that on the other side of the table was anyone worth bargaining with. That's what's happening. And that's why you have this sort of insane disconnect right now between the United States and the Israeli government. Again, it's a unity government. No one in Israel is talking about making concessions to the Palestinian Authority for a wide variety of reasons, including the fact that Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah continues to pay actual families of terrorists who kill Jews. Sure, the Martin Fund, yeah. Right, and, and the Which fact, is from the, the moderate West Bank. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's the, the, So, you know, again, like the, the taste in Israel for this is a... If, even the people who are the, the Chilonim, right? Those are the most secular people in Israel, uh -huh. which was, by the way, the, the place that was attacked on October 7th. I mean, what people should understand is that October 7th was not an attack against settlements in the West Bank. It was an attack on peace villages that were essentially disarmed. And many of these people who were killed were peace activists who were literally trying to work with people in Gaza to get them jobs. I mean, it's just, uh -huh. it's, it's mind boggling. That's which why is you've had this ground shift in Israel. The next 20 years in Israel is going to be about security and economic development, period, end of story. Everything else goes second, third place. And I will say, I agree essentially with everything you're saying. Um, not to loop back on another topic, but this is one of the reasons then why I was so critical. I don't want to say critical, but like kind of nonchalant about the Abraham Accords because they didn't address anything with the Palestinians whatsoever. They brought no, in countries they that weren't super relevant to the conflict. They didn't bring in Qatar, which is where a lot of the money and support for the Gaza Strip comes from. They didn't involve Iran at all. They involved bilateral. No, but it totally changed the mentality. And this is why what, what I'm seeing right mm -hmm. now, this is why, listen, I'm, I think sure. that, that Biden has done better than I certainly expected him to do in terms of support for Israel. Like Obama okay. was way less supportive of Israel for than sure. Biden by every metric. Mm -hmm. With that said, the rhetoric that he's been using recently and the Blinken have been using recently about Israel needs to make painful concessions for peace, Israel recentering uh -huh. this issue at the center of relations in the Middle East is doomed to failure. The magic, magic is a strong word, the, the benefit of the Abraham Accords was proof of what you're saying, which is true, which is that all of these surrounding countries in reality have abandoned the idea that there's a centrality to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That is not the central conflict in the Middle East. Uh -huh. And by the way, one of the reasons it's not the central conflict in the Middle East is because actually, ironically, because of the rise of Iran, right? It, it's, it's Sunni states that are largely signing up with Israel because they're realizing they need some sort of counterweight to a, a burgeoning nuclear power in Iran. Can we talk about Ukraine? Sure. Do you have a not? disagreement with, you, uh, with, with what uh, Destiny said? My, my main problem with Biden's policy with regard to Ukraine is that he outsourced the end goal of the war to Zelensky early on. Now, that might make sense if that goal were something that he was willing to fund to the point of achievement, uh, or if Zelensky could have achieved it on his own. But right now, and this has been true since pretty early on in the war, as point Henry Kissinger made, uh, this is that, that pretty early on in the war, it was very clear that, for example, 
Crimea was going nowhere. The Russians had control of Crimea, barring the United States, giving permission to fly F-16s over Crimea. Nothing was going to change over there. The same thing was true in most of the Donbass, right, in Luhansk and Donetsk. That, that was not going to change. Zelensky's stated goal, and you understand it, he's the leader of Ukraine, right, is, is that there was a predation on his territory in 2014, and that the Russians sent their little green men across the border, and then they took all of these areas. And so he, as the leader of Ukraine, is saying, okay, I want all of that back. Now, the reality is that the U.S.'s interests had largely been achieved in the first few months of the war, meaning the revocation of the ability of Russia to take Ukraine and just ingest it, and two, the devastation of, of Russia's military capability. I mean, Russia has just been wrecked. I mean, their military is in serious straits because of the war in Ukraine. From an American perspective, I'm very much pro all of that. I think that we have an interest in Ukraine maintaining a buffer status against uh, a territorially aggressive Russia. I think that the United States does have an interest in degrading the Russian military to the extent that it can't threaten the Baltic states or threaten Kazakhstan or other countries in the region. The problem I have with Biden's strategy is, as always, I think that it's a muddle. And I think muddles tend to end with misperceptions. War tends to break out and maintain because of misperception. Misperception of the other side's strength, the other side's intentions, and, and all of the rest. People misperceive what's going to happen. They say, I'll, I'll cross that line and nothing will happen, right? This is what Putin thought. He thought, I'll cross that line. They'll greet me as a liberator. And because the United States just surrendered in Afghanistan, essentially, they won't do anything. And the West is fragmenting because NATO's fragmenting and all the rest of this. And obviously, he was wrong on, on all of those scores. The problem for, for Biden is that as with virtually every war, no end line was set. And so it became out recently, it was widely reported, that actually there was a peace deal that was on the table in the first few months that Putin was on board with uh, that basically would have ceded Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea to Russia in return for solidification of those lines, American and Western security guarantees to Ukraine, right? Ukraine wouldn't formally join NATO, but there would be security guarantees to Ukraine. We're ending up there anyway. It's just taking a lot more money and a lot more time to get there. And do you think and, Trump would have helped push that piece? Yes. And I think and I think that Biden actually did Zelensky a bit of a disservice because Zelensky knows where this war is going to end. And it's not going to end with Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea in Ukrainian hands. It's just not going to. And he knows that. What actually, in my opinion, Zelensky needed was for Joe Biden to be the person who foisted that deal upon him so that he could then go back to his own people and say, listen, guys, I wanted all those things. But the Americans weren't willing to allow me to have all those things. And so we did an amazing job. We did a heroic job in defending our own land. We devastated the Russian military, even though no one expected us to. But we can't get back those things because it's unrealistic to get back those things because America basically, they're a big funder and they're the ones who want the deal. Instead, what Biden said, and this was reported in the Washington Post last year, the Biden administration said, we're going to fight for as long as it takes with as much as it takes. And when they were asked until when, they said, whatever Zelensky says. And that's not a policy. That's just a recipe for a frozen conflict with endless funding. Now, it may be that Putin has walked away from the table and that deal is no longer available. If that deal is, is available right now, I certainly hope that's being pursued behind closed doors. My main critique, again, of Biden is that when you outsource the end goal to another country without stating what America's interest is, that's a problem. I also think that Biden did really quite a poor job of sort of explaining what America's realistic interests are. I, I, I don't like it when American leaders um, it's weird for me to say this, but I, I'm not a huge fan of the we're in it to protect democracy kind of rhetoric, because frankly, we are allied with many, many countries that are not democracies, and that's not actually how foreign policy works. Uh, we should, as an overall, you know, 30,000 foot goal, advance democracy and, and rights where we can. But the reason that we were fighting in favor of Ukraine, and when I say fighting, I mean giving them money and giving them weaponry. The reason that we were doing that in favor of Ukraine is not because 
of Ukraine's long history of clean voting and non-corruption. The reason that we were doing that is to counter Russian interests in the region. I mean, that was, it was a pure real politic play. And that real politic play is hard to deny no matter what side of the aisle you're on. I think that what many Americans are going to, are reverting to is we have no interest there. Why are we spending money there and not spending money here? And that, that kind of stuff. And that, that argument can always be applied unless you actually articulate the reason why it is good for Americans beyond simply the ideological for the United States to be involved in a thing. So for example, I think right now, when when Biden is talking, I think that what Biden just did, he's the United States as we speak, is striking the Houthis. I think that that's a really, really good thing. I think that's a necessary thing. And I think American people should understand why that is happening. It's not because of quote unquote ideology. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, on a, on a very root level, but really it's because you're, you're, screwing up the straights. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. You yeah. can't screw up free trade. And Americans have an interest in not seeing all of our prices at the grocery store double and triple because a bunch of ragtag pirates, you know, akin to the, the Barbary pirates from 1800 are, are bothering everyone, right? So Ben said a lot there. Do you disagree with any aspect on the Ukraine side? That um, a little bit, yeah. Um, I think on the macro, I agree. Maybe we get into weasel a little bit on some things. I, on the final thing that he said, though, I wish that Americans could have honest conversations about foreign policy. I think that it would just be better for everybody. Um, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, Red Scare after the Cold War, where it was like literally, you know, the behemoths, you know, were fighting against communism. And we felt like after 91, every single foreign policy decision needs to be able to be explained in like seven words. Like he's the bad guy and that's it. Um, I wish we had more honest conversations about uh, what our foreign policy interest is in a particular region, because I don't think most Americans honestly could even articulate why Israel would be an important ally or why it's important to defend Ukraine against Russia or why should we care about Taiwan at all? I don't know if most Americans could articulate anything there, um, even though they might have very strong opinions about why uh, we ought to be involved in certain conflicts. So I do agree with that. I wish we had more honest conversations about uh, foreign policy. Um, in terms of how Biden has handled Ukraine, my, the things that I liked the most were, one, that he was very clear in the beginning about what we wouldn't do. So Biden saying that we're not going to do... Um, uh, not a red line, no fly zones over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be deploying troops on the ground in Ukraine. We're not going to be doing a- anything that would have, you know, U.S. soldiers and Russian soldiers crossing swords with each other. That's not going to happen. I like that he made that very clear at the beginning. Um, and I like that he coalition built between NATO and the EU to get people to send uh, funds, training, soldiers, airplanes and everything to Ukraine. I thought those two things were really good. In terms of basically writing Zelensky a blank check, I would like to hope that Biden and the entire United States learned a lesson from Iraq and Afghanistan that open-ended missions with unlimited budgets and no clear goal are like the worst foreign policy decisions you can ever do. They've like defined U.S. foreign policy for the past two or three decades, which is unfortunate, but seems to be the case. Um, my, My feeling would be, and this is just a feeling, I don't know if internal cables have leaked that say otherwise, is the uh, the Biden administration has probably always had a quiet position of at some point there's going to be an off-ramp here. And I think even a month or two ago, I think those talks were being leaked, that discussion had begun with Zelensky looking for an off-ramp. But publicly, of course, the United States is never going to come out and say, we are going to support you guys to fight as much as you want for three months. And then after that, it's no more. Obviously, that can't be the statement. It's always going to be that we're going to support you in your fight against Russia. Yeah, we tried that under Obama with Afghanistan. It was terrible. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, you, you can't. We'll you escalate can't, the troop levels to X, but only for six months, and then we're. Yeah, you out. can't. You just can't do that. It's always going to come off as we're going to support you forever and as long as it takes and as long as you need whatever we have to do to defend freedom and democracy in your country. And any any other statement would be absurd. So I can understand why it feels like on a public level a blank check and an indefinite time period was granted to Zelensky, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think I again I hope. 
We've learned our lessons in the Middle East about the forever wars, that this isn't going to be a forever funding to Ukraine to fight for as long as they want. Um, I do disagree. I feel like we're playing a little bit retrospectively, saying that, like, well, it's obvious that they're not going to capture the Donbass. It's obvious that they're not going to capture Crimea. I agree for Crimea, that was incredibly obvious. But it was also really obvious that in two weeks, Russia would own Kiev and Ukraine was going to be Belarus 2.0. I think that even for a lot of uh, military people um, and analysts around the world, uh, that 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 was a, an expectation or at least a significant probability. Nobody knew uh, the, the phrase that's thrown around now is paper tiger, that Russia's military was as ill-equipped as they were. So I can understand why, especially if you're Ukraine and if you've repelled an invasion from one of the world's largest armies, why you might feel like, well, fuck it, you know, let's fight for a few months. Let's fight for a year. Let's see what happens. And I can understand the United States supporting them. But I agree that there has to be some reasonable off-ramp where we're not going to fight forever. I think the U.S. Um, State Department has already begun those conversations with Zelensky to look at what that off-ramp looks like. Um, but yeah, I'm not too sure. Other than like explicitly stating publicly, like you can only fight until this date. I don't really know what else I would change. I, I don't think the, I don't think the Biden administration should have done that. I don't, I don't know what else. Do you think Biden do. should cut this deal on uh, on the funding? Meaning there's like six, there's this 105 billion dollar deal that's been held up by debate between Republicans and Democrats over border, right? So basically it contains $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, another several billion dollars for Taiwanese defense against China, and then includes some border funding and some border provisions. Republicans mm -hmm. want the border funding and the border provisions because we can get into the illegal immigration issue, but that's mm -hmm. a pretty serious issue. And Biden and Democrats have been unwilling to hold that up. And that, that, that seems to me like just from, put aside Republicans, Democrats, it seems like political malpractice, meaning there's a widespread perception in the United States that the border is a disaster area. Joe Biden wants these things. Many Republicans don't want these things. If he caves on the border stuff, he gets all the things that he wants, and he's going to be able to go back to the moderates in the country and say, I did something about the border. It seems like such an obvious win. I'm, if he caves on the border stuff, you mean on the Ukraine stuff? Yes, because then he gets yeah. the whole package, sure, meaning yeah. he, can, he can go back to his own base and he can say, <sighs> listen, guys, I wanted to I wanted to be easy on the border. The Republicans forced me to it, but we needed the Ukraine aid. We needed the Taiwan aid, right? Yeah. Like that's, you're, honestly, you're going to be more educated than me on this. I don't like, uh, or maybe maybe I just don't know enough. I don't like the principle that when we negotiate things in the United States, there's like 50 million hostages at all points in time for every single thing. Like, oh boy, here comes the debt ceiling. What do the Republicans want? What do the Democrats want? Oh boy, like here, you know, we can't fund our government. Um, but I mean, obviously the the argument is going to be that if the Ukraine funding doesn't come in this bill and if Biden and his administration feel like it's really important that unilaterally, or not unilaterally, but as a single issue, it's not going to pass. So um, I, I would say that at this point, and I don't know what the conversations look like between the Biden administration and Zelensky. I would say at this point that it's probably fair to start making contingencies on the money that we give to Ukraine that, listen, like this uh, conflict has, you know, waged on now. Like now we need to start looking for potential peace. We can't just write you an unlimited check. So, I mean, if those strings are attached, I'd be OK with it. But the broader question of like, is it OK to make this particular piece of legislation with all this funding contingent on uh, the Ukrainian funding? I mean, that just seems to be the way the government works now, unfortunately. Quick pause. Bathroom break. One of the big issues in this presidential election is going to be January 6th. It's in the news now, and I think it's going to get become bigger and bigger and bigger. So question for Destiny first. Did Donald Trump incite an insurrection on January 6th, 2021? Absolutely. Uh, this is probably ignoring every other issue we've talked about, of which I think there are plenty that I would say disqualify Trump from holding office. Um, I think that the conduct and the behavior leading up to and including January 6th, I think is wildly indefensible. I am excited to see Ben <laughs> try to, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the three to four stages are the, um, the taking 
what I think any reasonable person would say, knowingly false information about elections being rigged or ballot boxes being stuffed or Ruby Freeman, you know, running ballots three times in Georgia, taking that knowingly false information and trying to call uh, state secretaries and stuff to, to have them flip their electoral vote. That was horrible. Um, the plot that Eastman hatched in order to have these like false slates of electors where all seven states had citizens go in and falsely say that they were the duly elected uh, electors that could submit votes to Congress. That was insane. Uh, that happened. Um, asking or begging Pence to accept these false states of electors initially, and then just say, you should just throw it out completely and throw it to the uh, House delegation, which was majority Republican. That was absolutely unbelievable. And then on the day of January 6th, trying to capitalize on the violence by him, Giuliani, and Eastman making phone calls to senators and congressmen saying, well, don't you think maybe you guys should delay the vote a little bit? You know, don't you think they're just really mad about the election? I think he said to McCarthy, they're more upset than you. Um, and and his utter dereliction of duty in not doing anything to uh, stop the, the rioting that happened on January 6th because he was too busy taking advantage of it. I think all of these things are horrible. Uh, I look forward to seeing the... Uh, Jack Smith indictments play out in court, uh, maybe even the Georgia Rico case. But um, yeah, I think all of these things are un unfathomable. And I think when you look at the plot from start to finish, clearly the goal the entire time was to circumvent the peaceful transfer of power. That was the goal from start to finish, whether it was through false claims, whether it was through illegal schemes, or whether it was through violence at the Capitol to delay the certification of the vote. Ben? <laughs> So I'm glad you're excited. It's always fun. Uh, uh -huh. So um, th there are two elements to incitement of insurrection. One is incitement. The other is insurrection. Uh, so incitement has a legal standard. So does insurrection. Neither of those standards are met. So if you're asking me, morally speaking, did Donald Trump do the right thing between November 4th and January 6th? I said, I will continue to say, no, he did not. I think he was saying things that are false. Uh, with just factually false about his theories with regard to the election, about the election being stolen, about fraud. This was all adjudicated in court. He did not even bring many of the claims that he has brought publicly and all the rest of that. If we're talking about incitement of insurrection as a legal standard, it doesn't meet any of those standards. When it comes to incitement, it has to be immediate law, incitement to immediate lawless action. That's the standard for incitement. And I'm very meticulous in how I use this because I happen to speak publicly a lot. And that means there are lots of people who listen to me, which means some of those people are probably crazy. And some of them may go and do a crazy thing. Did I incite them? The media tends to use the word incitement very loosely with regard to this sort of stuff in the same way that Bernie Sanders, quote unquote, incited the congressional baseball shooting. He did not. Bernie Sanders has a lot of things I disagree with. I think Bernie's a schmuck. doesn't matter. He did not incite that. So saying bad things is not the same thing as inciting violence. Inciting violence, the legal standard in the United States is, I want you to go punch that guy in the face. That's that's inciting. Uh, with regard to insurrection, typically in insurrection, and there are some descriptions in case law, though none in statutory law, as far as I'm aware, the typical description in case law is the replacement of one legitimate government of the United States with another by violent means. The, the notion that Donald Trump coordinated any such insurrection is belied by the FBI itself. The FBI put out a report in, uh, I believe it was August of 2021, suggesting that there was no well-coordinated insurrectionist attempt coordinated by the White House. Uh, in fact, what you had was Donald Trump thrashing around like that weird alien in uh, the movie Life. I don't know if you ever saw it with Jake Gyllenhaal, or he's like kind of thrashing up against this glass box, just an alien just thrashing up against the glass box. Uh -huh. uh, that, 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 I think, is, is more what you were seeing from November 4th to January 6th. Um, and then, again, the claim that 
January 6th itself was an insurrection. So virtually, I'm not aware that anyone was charged with actual insurrection. There were some people who were charged with seditious conspiracy. There are insurrection statutes that do exist. No one was charged under those particular statutes. Um, you know, the, there were some people who you could say informally had insurrectionist ideas. Those would be the people who wanted to hang Nancy Pelosi or kill Mike Pence. And those people are in jail right now. Uh, and the election went forward. The election was certified. Mike Pence presided over the certification. Mitch McConnell presided over the certification. Joe Biden has been the president for the last three years. So the Donald Trump, by the way, was still president at that point. If he had actively wanted to do what other people who have actually launched coups have done, he would have theoretically called the National Guard not to put down the riot, but to actually depose the the sitting government of the United States in the name of a specious legal theory. He did not do that. He did not attempt that. Nobody working for him did that. The the most you can say, I think, about what everybody was doing is that, you know, and I, I want to say everybody. We, we can talk about Trump because this is really about Trump. He used a phrase that, that Trump was disseminating knowingly false information. The word that's carrying a lot of weight there is the word knowingly. Um, so knowingly implies a nowhere. Do I think the information he was disseminating was false? Yes. Do I think that Donald Trump has a unique capacity to convince himself of nearly anything that is to his own benefit? Absolutely. And I think that that's actually what, Donald Trump was doing there. And the evidence of that is Donald Trump being a human and all of us watching him for the last several years. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that that he knew it to be false, I'm not even sure those standards apply in any, like, and just assessing him as a human, which is really what we're being asked to do because there's an intent element to, to this crime. You know, d does Donald Trump, do you think that today Donald Trump knows that he lost the election? Absolutely. So I, I don't, actually. <laughs> I think but that- when we, so I'm glad that you have the attorney background. When we are assessing mens rea, when we're looking at certain criminal statutes where intent is required, it's a reasonable person standard, right? Like, uh, would a reasonable well, person have known that they were? Uh, no, it depends on the mens rea standard. So it, it, it's not the same in every case. If you have to establish individual intent, mm -hmm. then it's not enough to say a reasonable person should have known. That would be enough for a negligence statute. Usually sure, when you're for, talking about reasonable people, person statutes, just legally speaking, mm -hmm. a reasonable person statute is should a reasonable person have known? That's when you get to like manslaughter. Sure. You can't do a reasonable person standard on like first degree murder. So for, you have to establish actual motive in first degree murder. But for first degree murder, you don't need the statement of I plan to kill this person or I intend to kill this person. We can no. prove that state of mind. You, no, you need, a, you need a, you need circumstantial evidence. Correct. Yes, yeah. sure. You could prove So it. I feel like my, my feeling for Donald Trump was there were all these people around him that he trusted to investigate election fraud. He trusted Barr and the DOJ. He asked Pence, uh, his vice president, to look into it. He asked his chief of staff. He asked his legal counsel. There's so many people that uh, ostensibly uh, he trusts them if he's asking them to look into it. And when all of them looked into it and reported back to him, no, we found nothing. What and unless we're going to literally make the concession that Trump might actually be a delusional psycho man at that point, should he not have realized like, well, OK, maybe that's not a thing. He should have realized the day of the election that he lost the election. But that's not. But that, that's sure, but not I'm just asking, I'm saying that like at that point, should he not have known that for him to go and, and propagate those claims that he'd asked all of the people he trusted to research and then for him to take those claims to uh, Michigan and to Georgia and then publicly and to try right. to convince people to, to throw out the election. You don't think that but you're doing the same thing. You're averting to should a reasonable person have known? Yes, a reasonable person should have known. Did Donald Trump know? That's that's a, that's a different that's a different question. And so conflating those two questions is going to get you into some message territory. By the way, this is why Jack Smith charged the way Jack Smith charged. Yeah, which was right, Jack Smith did not charge conspiracy. Jack Smith did not charge insurrection. He did not charge seditious conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Right. If he if, the but reason is because Jack, he's, Smith, so Jack Smith is a good lawyer. What he's doing is he's actually broadly, I would say, pretty obviously expanding statutory coverage in weird areas in order to cover a thing that doesn't quite fit into any of these legal categories. 
But the point that I'm making is that Jack Smith is on my side of this. He doesn't think that he can actually establish the intent necessary to convict under a seditious conspiracy or or in insurrection. I agree with that. But I think a lot of the underlying facts, though, because he does bring up those calls to uh, Raffensperger in Georgia, he does bring up in the indictments that that they were knowingly false information. So it seems like that's going to be part of the case, maybe not to convict on any of the four particular charges that he mentioned, but it seems like that's probably going to be part of um, what he's going to have to establish in court to convict Trump. So I I want to look at the actual text of the charges. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sorry that I don't have them memorized. I believe one's a fraud charge that generally does not apply to cases like this. Generally, the fraud charge is like you're trying to steal money from the government. Uh, sure, fraud has been used like pretty a, broadly in the past, though. It doesn't have to just be because um, Smith has done oral arguments in response to a lot of the claims by Trump's lawyers. This was one of them. The infinite civil and criminal immunity was another one of them, where he cites past cases where these types of things, because I think it was to defraud of civil rights, I think was the fourth charge. Right. So the, the defraud of civil rights is usually somebody standing in the actual like voting house door and preventing you from voting, mm-hmm. not you have a specious legal theory that you espouse in court about whether those votes should be thrown out. Sure. Um, yeah, Although that, I don't like the, when we say specious legal theory and novel uh, application, which I do agree some of these in some ways is novel. I don't think we've ever also had a president try to do this before. It is a novel situation where well, somebody I mean, we, has resisted the peaceful transfer of power this clearly well, it, it, in so the, many different ways. Well, if you're talking about the legal cases, that, I mean, that's not true, but Gore, Gore sued in 2000. I mean, so that, so like, if we're well, talking about the legal cases, If this was comparable cases, to right? Gore, if this was comparable to Gore, then- I'm not saying it's comparable to Gore. I'm saying that if the idea is that espousing a legal theory in court amounts to de facto some form of election denial or interference in some way that that can't that that's not as a general principle it's over-inclusive sure gore wasn't trying to decertify the vote though for states right they challenged their thing to the supreme court they lost their case in the supreme court and then power transfer happened right and and donald trump had a bunch of legal challenges and then he had a rally and then there was a riot and then he left power yeah but but the eastman theory of what Pence could do in Congress is a far cry a away. A truly from. shitty theory. I mean, make no mistake. It's a but not really just shitty. shitty. I think that if any Democrat had done this, I, I think that I feel like we'd be looking at it in a far different lens. As in, we would be using terms like attempted coup, subversion of peaceful transfer of power. If um, if a, if a Democrat vice president had tried to essentially say that in uh, Congress they could throw away the vote, so uh, I think what I want to get to here, actually, so mm-hmm. we can be more specific, sure. is why are these terms important? We agree on, largely speaking, what happened. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the characterization of the term, are we, are we, we, we keep kind of bouncing around between two sure. different, different categories. And we I want to make sure we check. Ha- we the are, legal stuff, Okay, actually, okay, so we're just we're talking, not looking fine, at because insi- like you said, Jack, Jack Smith, nobody's charging with incitement, right. and I don't believe insurrection is um, a part of that. So we're talking legal. I, just in terms of like a president that is trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. So whether you call that a bloodless coup or a coup or uh, whatever contemporaneous term you want to use. Right, so prevent the peaceful transfer of power yes. with all means or using means that are inappropriate, not quite the same thing. Using means, Meaning that, means that are inappropriate that, or illegal. Okay. Inappropriate. Okay, so illegal. I don't think so. Okay. I don't. I don't think that these charges actually meet the the criteria for the for the various charges, and we can discuss each case if you want. Sure. Um, I, I, as far as inappropriate, mm-hmm. sure. I think tons of inappropriate stuff. I mean, I, I it, inappropriate. Seems the reason why not, I don't like the word inappropriate though is because then conservatives are very quick to say, well, sure, he was inappropriate, but everybody was inappropriate. I mean, I'll, I'll concede that he's more inappropriate than others. I, I just okay. don't see the most as, inappropriate. Sure. Okay. I mean, that's like, important to me though. Does it not bother you that like Donald Trump? sought through legal and extra legal and and Trump magical ways of trying to entrench his power as president past when he should have been able to? Is that not something that was incredibly troublesome? I mean, the question to me is the bigger question 
that I think the Democrats are trying to promote in this election cycle, which is this means he is a threat to democracy sufficient that if he were to win the election, there would not be another. Is that, that not, such but, a, is he, but he and my tried answer to do to that, that last is, time. Could he not try for next time? And I mean, he could try to do whatever he wants, presumably, and he would fail the same way that he did last time. Why do we think that? Because he failed. Because, so because there was a riot and within succeed. three hours. Yes. Like, let's say hypothetically, Lord, save me. Uh, <laughs> let's say hypothetically, Giuliani was the next um, head of the Department of Justice. Giuliani was the next attorney how, general. How would he be confirmed? <clears throat> um, I, well, I, I, I'm not entirely sure if... Uh, because so much of the Republican Party, despite feeling like they don't support Trump when it comes time to actually back him in Congress. Also, I'd have to check um, whether he would be barred by criminal conviction from holding. I, I don't know the answer to that. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're this, especially the 14th Amendment, we're figuring out a lot right. of this right now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, say, if not Giuliani, say if there are any other number of insane people that Trump could theoretically put on his side of the government that wouldn't tell him no last uh, next time, because there were a lot of people that rebuked him. There were Republicans in, in a lot of the states, right? Raffensperger is one of them. Um, there were Republicans in his own administration. Uh, you've got Rosen. Uh, right. You've got Barr. Um, there was his own vice president. But like, theoretically, next time, and I feel like last time going in, I'm going to do a little bit of mind reading at macro, maybe mm -hmm. if you're maybe I think that Trump kind of thought, one, I don't think Trump knows much at all about how the government works. I think we probably agree with that. Um, I think Trump probably thought that if he had people that were like at least in his party and kind of camp, that they'll basically do whatever needs to be done to give him what he wants um, and with no respect for process. But now that he sees it, well, that's it's not enough to just have allies. I need people that are fiercely allegiant to me. Would we not be worried that a guy that tried to essentially steal the election for real wouldn't try to pick people that would be more amenable to his plans in the next administration? Why I believe in the checks and balances of American government. I believe they worked on January 6th. So if you're asking me, do I think that Trump has bad intent or could have bad intent with that sort of stuff? Sure. Do I believe that the guardrails held and will continue to hold? Also, sure. So you, so if somebody was running and they blatantly said, like, I um, I don't want to use the fascist word, but if they said, like, I want to be an authoritarian, I'm going to abolish all elections, you would say, sure, he's saying that, but, like, I don't think he can actually do it, so it's okay if he runs for president. You don't care at all as long as you feel like the guardrails are I mean, are I might prevent. prefer other candidates, but I think that also one of the things that you do is that politicians, again, this would be an exceptional circumstance, but mm -hmm. politicians constantly make promises about the things that they are going to do and then don't fulfill, and we tend to take those out in the wash, meaning that, you know, the... If I promise that day one, as Donald Trump has pledged to do, that he's going to deport literally every illegal immigrant into the country, do I think he's actually going to do that? I mean, I, I really highly doubt it. He didn't do it last time he was in office. Mm -hmm. That's just, there are many examples of this. Do I agree. I, do, I, do, do I think, here's my question. Do you think the guardrails are going to fail to hold? I'm not sure. Uh, really? Yeah, because I think the issue is, is one, um, when it's election time, Republicans are spineless in office. Um, and I don't know how many congressmen would support what he wants just because they want to win re-election or because they think it's inevitable anyway. Well, I mean, I think that one of the one of the things that happened in 2022 is Democrats ran directly on this platform and a bunch of Republicans lost who were running on this platform. Literally every secretary of state ran on the Donald Trump, we should deny elections platform lost in every state. Sure, but other Republicans that have been- office is this. Sure, but I mean, like, look at what happened with, like, uh, Kinzinger, Kinzinger and Cheney, right, who had, were very, like, staunchly anti-Trump uh, after J6 uh, for that select committee, right? Kinzinger uh, didn't even run again, and Cheney lost her election by, I think, the widest margin that anybody has ever lost an election ever. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, all of U.S. <laughs> politics. People who were not um, yet born voted against Yeah, it, yes. I guess it's just, it's a surprising position to me for, if we're looking at, like, principled stances of government, the idea that a man who has, and I think we- both agree on this, that Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's only allegiance is to Donald Trump, right? We agree on that. 
The only thing he cares about is Donald Trump. I don't think it's the only thing he cares about. I think it's certainly the largest thing he it's cares about. It's the largest thing he cares about, right? So you've got a man who only cares about himself. Welcome to even. politics. I mean, it's, it may be more... But that's maybe, not even... It, it may be more with Trump, but it's certainly not unique to Trump. I think that the issue with Trump, too, though, is... Um, I think he's even a threat to the Republican Party, in which I think I think you would mostly agree with me, maybe not overall, but on every individual point, Trump picks bad candidates. He has no concern for the future of the Republican Party. Like, for instance, I think there is a chance, I don't think it'll happen because of how the polling looks now, but if Trump didn't get the nomination, I think Trump would say, screw it and run as an independent because he thinks he can win or whatever, right? Um, I, I doubt that he would do that, but theoretically possible yeah. I mean, again uh, trump has he was really content to throw georgia um the two runoff elections okay. under the bus because raffensperger is, didn't support him for I the mean, election so stuff, it, like. what what is all this in service of what's the what's the generalized argument that you're making do you believe i'll go well, back the, to my yeah, question sure, do you think that if, if trump wins mm -hmm. there will be no more elections is that is that like what what I put don't a percentage know on it? What what percentage do you think that that's a reality? If, that if Donald if Trump, Donald Trump wins, president? I think there is a one hundred percent chance that he will try to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. In terms of would can, he succeed? I can guarantee you he will not do that. Why is that? Because he's in a second term and he's no longer eligible, and he will believe he won and he will leave. Yeah, but hasn't Donald Trump himself <laughs> joked about running for a third term? That's, that's I think that, that I think that uh, having a third term. That, what what has Donald Trump not joked about? I mean. Forgot. I don't. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> if, you want, if, if you want to prevent if you want to prevent him from creating a revolution, you probably should sure. actually just appoint him president and here's then he can't a, run again. So. Here's another broad argument that I don't like in favor of Trump, and this was brought up <laughs> earlier in terms of like we talk about like not grading presidents on a curve, but then earlier we said we take Biden's rhetoric. Oh no, I totally grade Trump. I, no, I 100% grade presidents on a curve. Are you kidding? Oh, okay. I grade pretty much everybody on a curve. Well, then I feel like I don't treat my seven year old the same like, way that I treat my nine year old. Sure, but and I don't. I don't, I don't like that. It feels like we're treating Donald Trump like a seven year old or a nine year old. I think we should treat him like the president of the United States. I don't think having a president that has taken like concrete steps to prevent the transfer of power, which he did with the electorate's sham, which he did with Pence, and which he did with trying to capitalize on the J6 violence. A president that's taken concrete steps towards uh, cooing the government, essentially. I don't know why that guy, we'd say, well, you know, it's Trump, he does Trump things. The guardrails held, I'll probably hold next so, time. So, like, I mean, when we say we shouldn't, do you mean that he should be actually barred from office? I'm just talking about support for him. I don't even think Republicans should support, should support Trump. You lose your incumbent advantage. The guy's obviously self-destructive. He's destructed the political party itself. Like, um, Do you think she, he should be on the ballot? Um, you think there's a case to be made to remove him from the ballot? I think there's a case to be made, but man, the phrasing for as much as our uh, governmental founding fathers, and everybody else, you know, wrote nice amendments and wrote nice in the Constitution, some of the phrasing is very, very, very blah. And the uh, Section 3... Um, the, the, the not requiring any type of actual conviction. Um, I don't have a strong feeling on it. I will say I'm very interested in reading the majority opinion from the Supreme Court. I seriously doubt the Supreme Court is going to uphold that states should be able to decide if they leave them off the ballot or not. Um, I think for the political future of the United States, it's probably not healthy that the leading opposition candidate is now going to be barred from the ballot. It's probably not healthy for us. Um, because then what? You want to talk be, about threats to democracy? That would be a pretty serious one applied across would, the board, by it, the way. It would be. However, like that threat to democracy was earned by Donald Trump and the conservatives that supported him. I think conservatives made a dangerous gamble when they threw Trump into office. And now like all of the fallout from that is is something that we all as Americans have to deal with. I mean, I, I think that the, the unprecedented legal theory that a state can simply bar somebody from the ballot on the basis of in an informal way, believing that he is, quote unquote, an insurrectionist uh, is is pretty wild. I mean, that's that, that we can is say it's pretty wild. But there is an amendment in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, that says that if they have engaged in this, they shall not be, or you shall, I don't remember the phrasing because it doesn't require conviction, but it's if a self-executing, arguably thing. If but, we're getting into constitutional law, I mean, there, there, there are a number of provisions that, that suggest that this is, number one, not self-executing. I mean, the minority opinions in the, in the Colorado Supreme Court case are, mm -hmm. are pretty thorough. Uh, the, the number one contention, which is that this is not self-executing uh, because other elements are not self-executing, uh, that ignores subsequent 
actual law that, that happened. I mean, the, the Congress passed a law, for example, in 1872, defining who was an insurrectionist, who was not an insurrectionist for purposes of elections. Mm-hmm. In 1994, Congress passed a law that specifically defined insurrection as a criminal activity so that somebody could theoretically be convicted of insurrection and therefore ineligible to run for office. It is unlike, say, the the, the analogs that are used by the majority opinion, like age. Obviously, this is not the same thing. We can all tell what somebody's age is by looking at their birth certificate. I can't tell whether somebody's an insurrectionist without any reference to a legal sure. statute or a definition of the term. I would also be careful with that because remember, one of Trump's first like big political actions was challenging Obama's birth certificate. <laughs> well, I, and, and I thought that was dumb at the time. But sure. in any case, I like that you both said 100% chance that Trump will try to go for third term and 0% chance, which statistically- right, Third term, he's done, man. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, he would want to. Given Trump, Trump's going to walk try. around, hands up high. He's going to be like, I'm a two-term president. I'm the only president since Grover Cleveland. He wouldn't know. But, but yeah. since Grover Cleveland, who served two non-consecutive terms. I kicked Joe Biden out of office and I kicked Hillary Clinton out of office. Dude would be like, he'd be living large. Are you kidding? He doesn't want the presidency anymore after that. I just think that the, I think it's scary that like Donald Trump, it feels like for all of the accusations that are made sometimes against Democrats, like Biden is ordering uh, Garland to investigate Donald Trump and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it seems like Donald Trump would actually do that with his DOJ, would give them orders. He didn't. Um, he didn't. Well, he, was, he, he, kind of, he kind of did though, right? Um, so for instance, with um, Jeffrey Clark, uh, Jeffrey Clark went to Rosen and Donahue and said, hey, listen, uh, I need you guys to sign off on a letter that we're going to use essentially to bully states into overturning their elections by saying we found significant election fraud. And part of that threat was Jeffrey Clark saying, listen, if you're not going to do it, Rosen, uh, you know, Trump's going to fire you and just make me the uh, acting uh, attorney general. That was the threat that he carried. And I think Trump repeated that threat in a meeting later on that was, I only rebuked when I think like half the White House staff said, if you do this, we're resigning. Okay, so that's a slightly different topic because now you're getting into all the election shenanigans and all this, but- Trump, I'm but, saying but, he threatened to fire his acting attorney general if he wouldn't carry the same plot for him, essentially. Like, if Trump could order his DOJ to do something, would he? Um- it's not beyond I, I, the pale for him, right? It's not beyond the pale for him to order them to do it. And then it's not beyond the pale for them to reject him doing that, which is the story of his entire administration. Whereas Joe I Biden agree. orders his DOJ to do things and then they just do them. Well, I, I'm not, we can get into the specifics there. Um, I, I just, I, it, this is one of the big problems that I have with, I mean, for example, all the talk about Trump tyrant, Trump executive power. I mean, Joe Biden has used executive power in ways that far outstrip Every anything. Every president has been stretching and stretching and stretching executive power. I mean, That's Joe, Joe Biden is going like, Joe Biden has gone well beyond anything Trump even remotely attempted to maintain via just pure executive power. And I, actually, Trump's use of executive power is nowhere near even what Obama's was. I Obama mean, Trump's inability to get border policy passed literally had him using executive power to, to march the military down to the border to do border policy. I mean, I mean, Joe Biden literally used the Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration to try to cram down vax mandates on 80 million Americans. That's insane. Sure, he literally why, said, why, I cannot yeah. relieve student loan debt and then tried to relieve hundreds of billions of dollars. In yeah, but what happened debt. to that? It got struck down by the Supreme Court. And then they still did it. They still did it. Biden brags about it. For for for, having for what he for what he was able to for what he was able to relieve, which I think um, were related to particular types of student loan debt. But I'm just saying that like, well, the guardrails are holding with Biden as much as they're holding with Trump. The only difference is, is that once Biden, you know, exhausts his executive power, he's not running around like lying to people or trying to extort people or so, trying to ha- and concoct insane schemes. Well, I mean, so I, uh, here, here's the way I would think of this. Think of the guardrails holding as the filter, sure. okay? Meaning like the the coffee is in the filter, some of it's, you know, what, what you want is going to get through and all the stuff, that the guardrails prevent the other stuff from getting through. Mm-hmm. Now the question becomes, what liquid are you pouring into the filter? Okay, meaning, so if, I, if I'm, if, if the filter exists, if the guardrails hold, and if Donald Trump can't steal elections, what's the policy that comes through the other end of the filter? The policy I get from Donald Trump on the other end of the filter is a bunch of stuff that I like. The policy that I get from Joe Biden on the other end of the filter is a bunch of bullshit I don't. So that's the basic calculation. Okay, so so then the idea is essentially that 
Donald Trump's rhetoric is insane, but we don't care. Um, Donald Trump would probably try to steal an election if he could, but he probably won't be able to. Um, he's not going to do it again. I told you. you he's not. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think he has any. Why not? Because he won't be eligible to be on the ballot in. I mean, by the way, you want to talk about 14th Amendment? Mm -hmm. That's where the 14th Amendment applies. OK, that, that's where it actually applies, meaning you cannot. He is not qualified to be on the ballot in 2028 if he is the president of the United States. States can literally, in self-executing fashion, take him off the ballot, just like he's past the age of 35. Once you have been president two times, you're no longer eligible to be president of the United States. Why? Do, then you why actually do you have a strong little yeah, case but like, to keep him off the ballot. Why, why, the, why would the 14th Amendment stop if he thought Vice President Pence could unilaterally decide the outcome of the election? When he's not on the ballot? So, so now, now your theory is that he's going to get he's going to get reelected, and then in 2028 he's not even going to be on the ballot, and he's going to direct his new vice president, Carrie Lake, to simply declare him president of the United States when he has not been on a ballot. I don't know what the I don't know what the scheme would be. I think we can kind of like laugh and say there's no scheme we, we could even concoct. But I think Macho that Camacho, like with the machine gun, he's going to walk. I, into I think the I think the issue though is that like the idea of electing another president that has tried to circumvent the peaceful transfer of power using extra legal means and then pretending like we can't concoct a single scheme that he could try to circumvent um, other legal processes to have a third term or to have a longer term or to uh, install who he wants as the next president. I just when a, when a person has already shown you who they are and with every single person around him agrees with that when every single person that's worked with him, save for the, what, Sidney Powell, uh, Eastman, and Giuliani, which I don't think even, I don't think anybody would want to throw their lot in with those three. Um, it just seems wild to me that we would say like, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and trust this guy with another uh, term of president, but like he can't run for a third term, so it's fine. When there's like 50 million other things. And I'll make you the case that if you want him not to make election trouble, you should elect him president in the next election cycle. And that then he will be ineligible. That, okay. Well, I find <laughs> that to be a wholly unconvincing argument, but okay. Well... Recently in the news, the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT failed to fully denounce calls for genocide. And that rose questions about the influence of DEI programs at universities. And so maybe either looking at this or zooming out more broadly at identity politics at universities or identity politics, wokeism at, in our culture, how big of a threat is it to our culture, to Western civilization? So obviously, I'm going to say it's a huge threat. Um, the reason that I think this is a huge threat, I want to give a definition of wokeism because people are very often accused of not using wokeism properly or believing that it's sort of a catch-all phrase. I don't think it's a catch-all term. Uh, I think that wokeism has its roots in postmodernism, which essentially suggests that every principle is a reflection of underlying structures of power and that therefore any inequality that emerges under such a system is a reflection, again, of that structure of power that used to be applied in sort of Marxist ways, the suggestion being that economic inequality was the result of misallocation of power in the structure preserved by a, an upper crust of people who wanted to cram down exploitation on people. That was sort of the Marxist version of postmodernism. And that got transmuted into sort of a racial version of postmodernism in which the systems of the United States are white supremacist in orientation uh, and are perpetuated by a group of people who are in fact in favor of the preservation of white power and white supremacy. That is the generalized theory of critical race theory, uh, as proposed by, for example, Gene Stefanczyk and Richard Delgado in, in their book on uh, critical race theory. That has taken a softer form that we refer to as DEI. The key in DEI is the E, meaning equity. So equity is a term that does not mean equality. People mix it up. Equality is the idea that we all ought to have equal rights, that we all ought to be treated equally by the law. 
equity is the idea that if there is an inequality that emerges from any system, it is therefore due to discrimination. And the best way to tell whether somebody has been victimized is by dint of their race. And we can tell whether you're a member of an oppressed group or an oppressor group by the intersectional identity that you carry and by the nature of your group's success or failure predominantly along economic and power lines in American life. This means that if one group is predominantly successful economically, they must be a member of the victimizing class. And the only corrective for that would be, as Ibram X. Kennedy likes to suggest, uh, effectively anti-racist policy is racism in the service of destroying racism, uh, that you're going to have to, that you're going to have to, you know, discriminate on the basis of race in order to correct for discrimination that's baked into the system. That's incredibly dangerous. It leads to a victim-victimizer narrative that is unhealthy for individuals and terrible for societies. It relieves people of individual responsibility, and it destroys the very notion of an objective metric by which we can decide meritocracy. And meritocracy is the only system human beings have ever devised that has positive externalities in literally any area of life. Every other distribution of wealth, power, done along other lines that is not having to do with merit has negative externalities. Every system having to do with merit has positive externalities because presumably the most effective and useful people are going to succeed under those systems. That's the very basis of a meritocracy. And the externalities of that mean that other people benefit from the meritorious and excellent performance of those people. Maybe it'd be good to get your comments, your old stomping ground, Harvard. Do you think the president of Harvard should have been fired? I mean, I think she should have been fired not over the plagiarism allegations. I think she should have been fired based on her performance just at that congressional hearing. Uh, if if the word black had been substituted for Jew in, in, in that statement by Elise Stefanik that she was or asking trans. about, or trans, or, or literally any other any other minority in America, maybe with the exception of Asian, uh, then the answer would have been very different coming from Claudine Gay. You know, with that said, I don't think the firing of Claudine Gay really accomplishes very much. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, did she get what she deserved? Sure. D- d- does that mean that the underlying DEI equity-based system has been in any way severely damaged? No, I think that this is a way for universities it's true for Liz McGill at Penn also, to basically throw somebody overboard as the, as the sacrifice to, to maintain the underlying system that, that continues to predominate at American universities, where they spend literally billions of dollars every year on DEI initiatives and diversity hires and diversity administrators and, and all of this. I mean, one of the costs of education escalating is in the massive administrative function that, that is now undertaken by universities, as opposed to teaching and, and you know, cost of dorms and such. You guys probably agree on a lot of this, right? Kind of, maybe, yeah. Um, I I don't know, I don't know what makes things do this, but it feels like we can never like have a good thing and then have it end as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, things always get taken to their uh, extreme, and then we have to fight on those extremes. Like I would argue that. Back in my day, we called it SJW, social justice warriors, before it became woke, um, I think <laughs> like 2013 onwards, or whatever. Like, there are aspects to wokeism that I think are good. Like, I like the additional representation that we have in media now. I like how, as much as people complain about the internet and how it's regulated, that there are way more groups that are represented on the internet, whether we're talking uh, X, the platform former, formerly known as Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, I think in some ways, or whether we're pushing, uh, you know, like women's achievements in school and in, in, um, in the wider workforce, I think that these are all good things. The issue that you run into is people don't ever have a stopping point, and I think people kind of get lost in this woke for woke sake thing, where we start to see these very weird warpings of these like academic, I guess, arguments that are used for really horrible things. 
Uh, so, for instance, I think that you can talk about in the United States things like white supremacy or uh, things like um, oppression or certain demographics, especially with like Jim Crow laws and pre-Jim Crow. And you can even talk about effects from that. But then when you run into this weird world where we've kind of warped these things so that like not only is white supremacy still as present today as it ever has been, well, actually, uh, black people and other minorities can't even be racist. They don't have the power to because we're going to use a different definition of racism. And we can only talk about punching up as opposed to punching down. Uh, and, and we're actually going to say it's totally OK for these people to say or do whatever they want. And it's never bad. But like white people who have always been the oppressors, even if you're like a trailer park guy whose family's addicted to meth, you know, you have all this privilege, et cetera, et cetera. I think that you run into these issues where wokeism, it starts off as like a really good idea. And I would argue has achieved really good things, especially in regards to like women's education and everything. And then it just gets so academia so there's a word there, academic, whatever, where you take something and you put it into school too much and then it comes out as some Frankenstein, you know, cancer baby of like horrible things such that today when I'm reading stuff, and I know Ben is the same way, like if I even hear somebody say the word like anti-racism, I'm probably ignoring every other thing you have to say. Uh, if you utter the word like colonial anything, I'm probably going to say you probably don't have anything uh, good to say. Um, yeah, a lot of it is just taken way too far. But you know what I will blame on some of this is I will blame conservatives for some of this, because I think one issue that happens, and I think Ben might even agree with me here too, is I think th there there's two huge problems that have happened in the United States, I think broadly speaking, is that one, we become more different than we ever have been. And two, we become more similar than we ever have been. And when I say this, what I mean is that like we're splitting off into these groups, and then these groups are enforcing this insane homogeneity between these two separate groups. And I think one of these schisms has been conservatives' reluctancy to participate participate in things related to higher uh, education. Uh, so for a long time, conservatives are saying like, oh, you know, the educational institutions are against us. You know, Rush Limbaugh talks about how evil the colleges are and blah, blah, blah. And then what happens is, is conservatives are less and less willing to engage in them. So then you get this scenario or this environment where everybody that's engaged in uh, academia on the administrative side are are fucking insane. <laughs> they're very like even more so to and I also want to draw a distinction between like the uh, the administrators and the faculty because oftentimes when you're reading story after story after story of like all of these insane admins that are pushing further and further left, usually the faculty is fighting against it. A lot of the tenured professors, a lot of people in their departments are saying like, "Hold on, well we actually don't agree with this." But I feel like because conservatives for so long have demonized these institutions rather than like critically evaluated them, uh, and, and tried to like have like honest critique and engagement that they've just like completely broken off. And when you only have a bunch of lefties or righties together, all they'll do is they'll veer off like even more uh, into their insane directions. Uh, I feel like that's a big problem that we run into in the country to where conservatives have totally broken off some conversations, broken away from where they won't participate in them anymore. And then the people that you have left just run as, as far to the left as possible. Certainly when you look at certain institutions, I think that one of the things that people on both sides of the aisle are constantly looking at is has the institution suffered such capture that there is just no capacity to fix it? And when you talk about the universities, I'm not going to blame conservatives for the failure of the universities because they haven't been present in major positions at universities since effectively the late 1960s. And you can go read Shelby Steele's work on this where he talks about how, you know, he used to be, he's now a conservative black person. He was a liberal black person at the time. And he was actually quite a, a radical black activist at the time in the 60s. And he, he talks about walking into the office of liberal administrators who are largely on his side with regard to civil rights and being a radical, him claiming that the systems of the university were inherently broken, were inherently wrong, unfixable. And he talks about this, very, it's a very evocative episode where he's talking about how he's smoking. And as he's smoking, the ash is growing more and more, and the ash falls down on this very expensive carpet. And the president of the university, who's listening to him rant and rave, he, he said, Shelby Steele says, I thought he was going to say something about this. I mean, I was wrecking like a $1,000 carpet in his office being a jackass. 
And instead, I could see him wilt inside. I could see him collapse. He didn't have the institutional credibility or the intellect or or sort of the spiritual strength to just say, listen, I agree with you on some of these things, but you're acting like a jackass. And what you see in the late 1960s and early 1970s is in fact the collapse of these institutions to the point where by the time I was going to college, there was this radical disproportion between conservatives and liberals. And the problem is that when it comes to a system like the universities, Basically, you have to separate the universities off into two separate categories. One is STEM, where the universities are still pretty damn good. American universities, when it comes to STEM, are still leading universities in the world. Harvard's main creations these days are coming from actual hard science fields. Then you have the liberal arts field, in which you basically have a self-perpetuating elite, because that's actually how dissertations work. If you have somebody who's very far to the left and you decide that you're going to write a dissertation on the history of American gun rights, the chances that that is going to be approved by your dissertation advisor are much lower than if you happen to write something that tends to agree with the political positions of your dissertation advisor. Now, listen, I think there are open and tolerant professors, even in the liberal arts at these universities. I went to these universities, right? I went to UCLA, I went to Harvard Law School. When I was at Harvard Law School, one of my favorite professors was Lonnie Guinier. Lonnie Guinier, they tried to appoint her, I believe, Secretary of Labor under Clinton, and she was too liberal, and she got rejected. So she was like a full-on communist. By the time I went there, she was great. We had debates every day. It was wonderful. She used to write me recommendations for my, my legal jobs after we left. Randall Kennedy, I don't agree with him very much. Randall Kennedy was a terrific professor. There are some professors who are like this. Unfortunately, there tends to be in these echo chambers more and more ideological conformity that is rigorously enforced, and it is by left on left. So, for example, when I was at Harvard Law School, the president of the university was another president who ended up being ousted, Larry Summers. Larry Summers had been the secretary of treasury under Bill Clinton, and he made the critical error of suggesting that perhaps the dearth of women in hard sciences in prestigious positions was due to possibly two factors that people were refusing to talk about. One was the possibility that women actually didn't want to be in hard sciences at nearly the rates that men do, which happens to be true. Uh, and two was the distribution of STEM IQ, right? Which is something that you certainly were not allowed to talk about. The idea that that the men's bell curve when it comes to IQ, particularly on STEM subjects, tends to be shallower than the women's bell curves. So when you get to the very end of the bell curve, what you tend to see is a lot of really dumb guys and a lot of really smart guys. And so when you're talking about the top universities, maybe that has something to do with the disproportion. And he's trying to explain that to say that our systems are not discriminating. If we end up with more men than women, maybe more men are applying and more men are qualified. That's that's quite He was ousted for that by a left-wing faculty and and you know general alum network at, at Harvard University. So there's a lot to blame conservatives for, for surrendering the playing field. I totally agree that conservatives should not have surrendered the playing field in some institutions. Colleges were surrendered a lot earlier than 20 years ago. They were surrendered in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah, so I think that um, a couple things. So uh, one of the big issues that I have with kind of like this, uh, I don't know if we call it era of Trumpism or populism, is this total disregard for institutions and this disconnect from participation in the system. So it's one of the big things that I felt with progressives about who who cares because they're all 20 years old, they don't vote anyway. Um, but it's another thing that I noticed with a lot of people that are uh, Trump voters, Trump fans or whatever, is this idea where we say this institution is uh, irrevocably destroyed. It, it's irredeemable. It can't be saved. It can't. Nothing that we do can can fix it. Um, and I think that what that leads people to doing is, one, they disconnect further, and then two, there's a general hopelessness when it comes to how society is like ran or structured, such that you fall into that populist brain rot of, the only person that can save me is Donald Trump, I can't trust literally anything. And I think that when you start driving people into that direction, all it does is it further amplifies all the problems that you're complaining about. So. 
That's one of the reasons why when we talk about like conservative participation, I want there to be more conservatives that are trying to participate in academia. But I feel like the leading thought or the leading speaking out against it is basically saying it's a waste of time. It's completely lost. So I, I think that the alternative to that is mm -hmm. that you're, you're seeing on the right mm -hmm. a growth of, for example, alternative universities. Saying yeah, you but won't that's the worst thing. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so at all. I think competition is a great way of incentivizing some change on, on behalf of universities that may have forgotten that there's an entire other side of the aisle in the United States. No, Meaning, no shot. I don't believe even, I don't think even you think that. So I, first of all, first I of all, think, let me make yeah, clear. Go, yeah, go. I think the entire educational system at the upper levels, if you're not in STEM, is a complete scam. I think it's a complete waste of money. I think it's a complete waste of time. And I think that it's all, all it is, is a formalized, very expensive sorting mechanism for people of IQ. That's all it is. People take an SAT, you go to a good school, you take four years of bullshit. I know, I did it at UCLA. And then we analyze based on your degree, where you should go to law school. I could have gone directly from high school to law school with maybe one year of training and then done one year of law school and been done. Okay, the reality is that this is a giant scam. And this is, again, it's a bipartisan problem, but it's just a generalized problem. The, we, we have, you wanna talk about things that hurt the lower classes in the United States? The bleeding of degrees up is so wild and crazy. There's so many jobs in the United States that should not require a college degree that we now require a college degree to do because there was this weird idea that came over Americans where they mistook correlation for causation. They would say, oh, look, people who go to college are making more money than people who don't go to college. Therefore, everyone should go to college. Well, maybe the reason is because people who are going to college were better qualified for particular jobs because on average, not all the time, but on average, a lot of those people were smarter and making more money because of that. And so all you've done is you've now created these additional layers of stratification. So a person who used to be able to get a job with a college degree now has to have a postdoc degree in order to go get that degree. A person who used to be able to just graduate high school, now it's de facto, you gotta go to JUCO and then you gotta go to college or nobody's even gonna look at your resume. It's really, really terrible for people who can't afford all of that. It's led to this massive increase in educational cost that is inexplicable other than this particular sort of bleed up, and by the way, federal subsidies for higher education. Again, one of my problems with federal subsidies for higher education, I'd love for everyone to be able to go to college if qualified to do so and if it is productive. But one of the things I did when I went to law school is I took loans because a bank said I was gonna get my money back if I got a law degree from Harvard. But you know when you're not gonna get your money back? If you're a bank, you're not gonna lend to some dude who wants to major in you know art theory because is that a good bet? There's no collateral, right? If, if I give a loan for a house, I can go repossess the house. How do I repossess your garbage college degree from UCLA? There's no way to do that. So, you know, one, one of my, so, you know, this is a broader conversation about education in general. I think the educational system is cruising for a bruising. And I think all that's necessary for it to completely collapse on the non-STEM side where you actually learn things is for people who employ to simply say, give me your SAT score and I will hire you for an apprenticeship directly out of high school. That it would cut out so much of the middleman. But as far as the general point that you're making about it, institutions. Mm -hmm. I, I may disagree on the education and how far it's gone. In general, I agree with you. So it's in, in general, I agree. And I get to use my, my favorite longest word in the English language here. I, I would consider myself in many cases an anti-disestablishmentarianist. Nice. Right? You see, I, I like to drop that. That's it. Because it, <laughs> if you're an establishmentarian, that means you like the establishment, to the disestablishmentarianism. Disestablishment right. So I'm an anti- so. Can you say that word, Dustin? That's right. the one we all learned growing up. Anti-disestablishmentarianism is the longest word in the dictionary. So he is also. But I and then some Canadian group would say, what about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? And then you're yeah, What about pneumoletromicroscopic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the science terms. Yeah, exactly. Or what so, about the 7,000 letter thing that's from part of a uh, biochemistry? <laughs> I got my education in the Soviet Union. So we just did math. <laughs> that's why you're a useful person. Soviet <laughs> Union math was that one plus one, how to make that equal three? We, we know long <laughs> words and he streams <laughs> on the internet and, and, and I talk for um, a living. So anyway, yeah. the, but the, the point is that I don't disagree that there is a general populist tendency on all sides of the aisle to look at the institutions and then throw them overboard. I think that some of that is earned by people who are in positions of power at institutions who have completely 
undermine the faith and credibility of those institutions. I think that you have to examine institution by institutions, which ones are salvageable and which ones are not. So I'm not a, a full anti-disestablishmentarianism. I'd be partially in sure. that camp. There are certain institutions like higher education in the liberal arts that I think we may be better off without. And then there are certain institutions like, say, participation in American government, where when people talk about we need a revolution, like, no, we don't. That's not a thing. We need an evolution. We need change. We, need, we can use the system. And, and you know, But I think you have to establish, you have to look at it industry by industry, you know, just institution curious. by institution. On that position on institutions, sure. do you think Biden or Trump would side with you more? Uh, as far as the institutions? Yeah. I think the institutions in the United States at the governmental level are robust. I think the social institutions are fair. Yeah, but I'm just curious on your general view of institutions. Do you think Biden or Trump would side with you more on how you view them? Um, I mean, I think that in rhetoric, Biden would. And then I think that he would tear out the face of the institution and wear it around like a mask like Hannibal Lecter. I mean, that's, that's my actual... Even he resisted some people's calls to like pack the court and... Uh, yes, because I think that his use of executive power was greater than that of Donald Trump. The power that he had, he used to greater effect than Donald Trump. Donald Trump, again, thrashed up against the sides of the box, but could not get out of it. Okay. Um, for just on a real quick, because on the that that answer went a lot farther than the initial question. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, just on the real quick thing, the reason why I, again, my main problem that I feel like we have today in society is people are getting into their own bubbles. The idea of having like conservative schools and liberal schools seems like the saddest thing in the world to me. Like I would want conservatives and liberals going to school together because I think these people need to interact with each other more, if for no other reason than to see that the other person is not like an actual monstrous, so, horrible entity that I wants to that, destroy the country. So I, I, listen, yeah. I think a classically liberal mm -hmm. idea for many schools would not be a bad thing. I think it would be a good thing. Yeah. Just wonder if that's salvageable. And if it's not salvageable, then the answer to that is to I actually like create it, alternative it, institutions. I feel like I feel like the biggest issue that we have is people are they sort into these different like phantom worlds to where even if you live in the same city, there are totally different worlds that exist between liberals and conservatives. And I feel like one of the big barriers to people understanding the other side sometimes it's just a little bit of information or a little bit of like firsthand experience. Um, when I so in terms of information, I'm sure you saw. Um, I don't I don't know if this is a full on study, but they were talking about how some huge percentage of students would change their mind on from the river to the sea when you told them what from the river what, to the sea What the river meant, was and what the right? sea was, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> or when you said like, yeah, what does a one-state solution mean? A lot of them, like such that the numbers went from like 70% to like 30% in terms of like support um, would, would fall. And it wasn't because you were doing a radical redefining their whole ideology. You were just giving them a little bit more information. Um, and then something that I've seen on a first-hand level is when I go and speak or do debates at universities, sometimes I'm in very, very, very conservative areas. Some of my fans are, are trans. Having like a trans person show up and talk to conservatives for a little bit, uh, not like in a speech, but just like in, a, in like a bar or a setting, like a lot of them walk away thinking like, oh, not every trans person is like this insane lunatic from Twitter that is a fucking an actual crazy person. And then for some of my fans, when they hang out with conservatives, like, oh, these guys are actually pretty friendly. I thought they would have all been homophobic, racist, transphobic, and evil, but they're not. They're just like normal people. I feel like we need more of that. Mixing. I totally agree with that, certainly. Yeah, and I feel like on our social media platforms, on our algorithms, in our schools, I feel like we're sorting harder and harder and harder. And any type of rhetoric that encourages the sorting is really bad and damaging. We need to like continue to mix up. And there's uh, other things I want to talk about, but Lex is opening his mouth Destiny the Uniter. Wow. All right. <laughs> like as, Biden. As yeah. we approach, <laughs> Not like Trump. As we approach the end, let us descend into the meme further and further. Uh, ben, you're in a monogamous marriage. Uh, and Destiny, you've been mostly in an open marriage mm -hmm. until recently. How foundational is marriage, monogamous marriage, to, to the United States of America? Can open marriages work? Are they harmful to society? Uh, um, ben. Marriages are the single most important thing that people can do in the United States because the things within your control are easier to control than the things outside your control. People tend to 
think about big political change, obviously about things they can do to change the entire system. But the reality is the thing that you can do that best changes society is to get married and have kids and raise your kids responsibly. That is the single best thing that you can do. Can an open marriage work? I mean, I think that it depends on your definition of work. So in my version of work, the answer is no, because what you actually need in order to facilitate the healthy growing of a child is a father and mother who are committed to each other. All idea, all ideas about there being no emotional component to sexual activity are completely specious. Uh, that it's truer for men than it is for women, but it's not true for either. Uh, the the idea of a full a full commitment to a human being with whom you genetically create children, which is typically how we've done it throughout human existence, uh, is in fact the fundamental basis for any functional civilization. It allows for the transmission of culture and values. It allows for the transmission of beliefs and responsibility. Uh, and it is it gives the great lie to both the communitarian lie and the, and the atomistic individualist lie. The communitarian lie is that you belong to the giant community of man, which is not true because you have a family uh, and your allegiance should be and is naturally to the members of your family first. That's how we learn. And then we expound that out. Uh, and it also is a lie to the notion that we are all atomistic individuals with no responsibilities. We are born into a world of responsibilities. Everyone is born into a world of responsibilities and rules and roles, and those are good. And if we do not actually socialize our children that way, there will be, number one, no children. Number one, there will be no healthy children. Number two, there will be no healthy children. Number three, there will be not the foundation for either social fabric, which is the real glue that holds together society, or for a functional government. Uh, so you know, yes, yes, monogamous marriage. I'm a fan. 15 years married, <laughs> four kids. Yes. Destiny, what do you think? Um, I think that when we talk about like relationships or marriage, I think something that's really important is we have to talk about whether or not children are being discussed or not. Um, because I think once you introduce the child aspect, I think the style or the type of relationship that you do is going to become way more important than whatever exists prior to that. Um, like I would agree, for instance, for in terms of what Ben is saying, that um, there's probably going to be some structure that is ideal for the uh, care and the raising of a child. Um, I think that having a child gives you a much bigger buy-in to society because now all of a sudden you care about a lot of things that you might not have before because not only do you exist in society, you can't just run. Uh, now you've got a child that exists there and you've got to ensure that everything functions smoothly, not just for you, but for that child as well. Um, and arguably, although we're getting into weird places, I guess, in the world now, like children are the primary conduit through for like where you transmit like cultural values and everything. Um, the, the one kind of weird thing that we're coming up against that we have been coming up against um, now for, for some number of decades and will continue to is as societies progress, seems like people are having less children. And I actually don't know 100% what the answer is to that question. I do. Um, yeah, I'm sure you do, yeah. Uh, I mean, an implementable answer that works, that we know we can get everybody on board with. Um, it seems like, for a large part of human history, um, having children, and it still is, having children is awesome, and children are cool, and children are magical and miraculous and all of this, but you didn't really have much competing for your attention to have a child, right? When you hit a certain age and you started working, um, especially if you were a woman, I mean, childbirth is kind of the next step. And then having a family, raising your children, and then doing that is kind of the next step. Nowadays, especially with women being able to work, especially with women having access to birth control, there's a lot available in the world that's competing for the interest of people that could otherwise be having children, such that we've almost flipped it, such that, as Ben brought up earlier, like wealthy people tend to have less children than not wealthy people, um, or unless you're part of particular religious communities that push childbirth a lot. 
I don't know if I would say there exists a, a moral imperative on an individual to have children. I think that there's a lot of interesting arguments down that path. I don't know if we're quite at the point yet where we need to say like, oh my God, we're running out of people. We need to have more kids. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we are seeing you know weird demographic trends that are having big impacts on how countries are playing out. For instance, the fact that we have a disproportionately huge aging population that needs to be taken care of with medical expenses and everything that vote in different ways than our younger population and that when they die off, like the way that society is going to look is going to be a lot different. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't actually have a. I'm not entirely sure what the future is going to look like in terms of pushing people to have kids when every single industrialized country, as they become more industrialized, have fewer and fewer and fewer children. Rapid fire questions. And the answer my my answer was go to church. Religion. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Well, we could talk about religion, but that's not rapid fire at all. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask. Uh, this is from the internet. Does body count matter? Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're really bringing up the red pill stuff. Are you avoiding answering? <laughs> I mean, it's totally, it depends on who you are. Oh, if you're depends. somebody that doesn't care about it, it doesn't. If you're somebody that does care about it, yeah, it does, of course. Depends on the... <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. Okay. Should porn be banned? No. If you could do it, yes. There is no, there is no benefit to pornography. It's a waste of time and destructive to the human soul. I can't believe I'm asking this question. Is OnlyFans empowering or destructive for women? I, Jesus, these are rapid fire. Yeah, just you can't. I mean, wow. it's probably empowering for the ones that are making a lot of money off it. It probably okay. feels disempowering for others that feel affected by the cultural norms set by women that do OnlyFans. There's my rapid fire answer. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's destructive to even the ones who are making a lot of money because when you degrade yourself to being just a set of human body characteristics that other people jack off to, it's bad for you and it's bad for them. Yeah. Is uh, rap music? Absolutely. <laughs> have you um, evolved on this? Or? Uh, have I evolved on this? Um, so... Again, I'm going to go to what's the definition of music? My original argument about rap was that music involves the following three elements, rhythm, melody, harmony. Rap typically involves maybe one of those. Uh, there there may, be, may be a melody, maybe, sometimes. Um, so it depends on the kind of rap. Uh, with that said, I, I could be convinced on this issue. But listen, I'm, I'm a classical violinist. I mean, that's how I was raised. I, I listen to Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart. Like in the car with my kids. So is it comparable? Is it in the same category as Beethoven, Brahms, and Mozart? I have a very hard time sticking it in the same category as that. All right. You're uh, both world-class debaters, um, even public inte intellectuals, if I can say that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I'm real hard here. I know. Uh, <laughs> you both care about the truth. What is your process of arriving at the truth? Uh, I think it's really important to everybody will say that they're objective and that they are nonpartisan. I think it's really important to have mental safeguards for bad opinions. Um, so for instance, like a couple things that I'll ask myself is for a particular debate that I'm having, like, can I argue convincingly both sides of the debate? If I can't, I won't bother having the debate because I realize that I'm probably too partisanly dug in if I can't even represent like an opposite argument here. Um, another question that you might ask yourself is like, well, what would it take to convince you out of a certain position? Um, if, you know, if you feel very strongly that, uh, you know, Medicare for all is a good you know, system by which to run the United States healthcare. And somebody says, well, what would it take you to convince you otherwise? If you can't even fathom, like, well, what would it take to convince me otherwise? You're probably too dug into a position. So I think if you go through life saying like, well, I try my best to be unbiased, 
rather than saying, I try to best my best be aware of my biases, <laughs> because the latter is more realistic and the former is literally impossible unless you're a computer. Uh, yeah. So I think having like actual mental practices that you engage in to try to counter some of the biases that you have is more important than trying to pretend that you're free of all biases and then consuming all your media from one source. Yeah. Ben? Uh, so, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I, I think that the easiest practical guide is read a bunch of different things from a bunch of different sources and where they cross is probably the set of facts. And then everything else is extrapolated opinion from different premises. That, that's the, that's, that's sort of the short story. So read, read the New York times and Breitbart and they're going to disagree on a lot. But if the core of the story, and the daily wire, certainly read the daily wire. If you read the daily wire and you read the Washington post and there is a, and there's a nexus of the same thing, then you can pretty well guarantee that at least, you know, if, if it's, if we're all blind men feeling the elephant, at least if we're all feeling the trunk, we know that there's a trunk there, right? You may not know what the elephant is. And if you're feeling frisky, then watch Destiny as well. Um, you've talked about, you know, having a conversation debating Ben for a long time. What is your favorite thing about Ben Shapiro? My favorite thing about Ben Shapiro is, at least when we're in election season, he's very critical of his own party. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, that doesn't, I feel like Ben generally tries to adhere more to the fact-based arguments than other conservatives that I listen to, which is something that I appreciate because it's more fun to fight on kind of like the factual grounds of discussing things like foreign policy or whatever, rather than people that only inhabit the idealistic or philosophical grounds because they don't want to learn about any of the facts. So I appreciate that. Ben, you've gotten a chance to talk to Destiny now. What, what do you like about the guy? A lot of the same sorts of things, but it's really fun to see how you do your process. That is a cool thing. That is a cool thing. And it's a gift to the audience because honestly, doing what we do, so much of what we do is sitting and reading and being behind closed doors and educating yourself and talking with people. But getting to watch you do it in real time is, is a really cool window into how people think and how people learn. So that's a really neat thing. Well, gentlemen, this was incredible. It's an honor. Thank you for doing this today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this debate between Ben Shapiro and Destiny. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now... Let me leave you with some words from Aristotle. The basis of a democratic state is liberty. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.